Today's episode is brought to you by our good friends at Manscaped. Fellas, have you started your spring cleaning yet? The carpets need cleaning, the drapes need dusting, and your lawn needs mowing. Spring has sprung and the global leaders in below-the-waist grooming have the best tools for cleaning aisle 5 in your pants. Time to clear out your winter brush and join the other four million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with promo code GWC. Once again, 20% off everything site-wide at manscaped.com plus free shipping with my special promo code GWC. Today's episode contains mature subject matter. While not the entirety of the program, there is talk of murder, suicide, violence, cultural appropriation, and intergenerational trauma. Please take care while listening. And he's a tightrope walker. He's been treading that apron. There he's brought Dan Miller out. Dan apart now, slashing. Whoa, what a flip. Hammerlock. Uh, backhand splash. Eagle trying for the press. Nope, not yet. Dan's a tough baby. There's a whip. Slashes him from Don Eagle was a Mohawk from the Ganawake Reserve, just outside of Montreal, Quebec, Canada. He was one of the greatest box office attractions in the earliest days of television wrestling. Fans from across Canada, across America, and across international borders were glued to the television screens to watch one of the most impressive wrestlers of the 1950s apply his trade. But what happened to Don Eagle's career that so derailed his path to superstardom? And why is it that so many folks are focused on March 17, 1966? Join us this month on Grappling with Canada as we take a deep dive look into the impressive life 
and everlasting career of Chief Don Spiegel. Hello everyone, and... To grappling with Canada. As with every month, I am your host, the Taxman. This month's episode is going to be quite the historical deep dive, and I'm really, really looking forward to uncovering some tremendous information regarding our subject of the month in April. But before we get into all that, if this is your first time to the program, Welcome to Grappling with Canada. You can go in the back catalog and check out some incredible episodes that we have featuring some Canadian professional wrestling talent, such as Rhonda Singh, Abdul the Butcher, Billy Two Rivers, Dino Bravo, Gene Kaniski, George Gordienko, and many others. Simply search for Grappling with Canada in any certain podcasting platform, such as Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Spotify, basically wherever you buy, sell, trade, barter, or steal your favorite podcasts, you will find Grappling with Canada. While you're there, please leave a five-star rating and a written review. Best part? If you leave a written review, I will be sure to read it on the next available episode of Grappling with Canada. I want to make mention as well, before we get any further that there are several ways that you can contact myself and get in contact with the show. You can follow me on Twitter at 6 underscore podcast. You can find this show on YouTube, youtube.com slash C slash six-sided podcast. We are marching our way to a thousand subscribers. So even if you listen to this on one of the various podcast platform feeds, please go ahead and subscribe to this show on YouTube as well. You can also find us on Instagram under Grappling with Canada. You can come on in and like our Grappling with Canada Facebook page, as well as you can come in and join the conversation on the Facebook group Canadian Professional Wrestling History. All of these are tremendous ways to get in touch with me, and especially via email at sixsidepod at gmail.com. You can email me anytime. And I do read everything that you guys send. Now, before we get into today's episode, I just want to thank everybody for checking out last month's episode, which was actually the second part of our two-part series covering Rowdy Roddy Piper. We had some tremendous feedback over the course of those two episodes. I'm very pleased with the amount of information that we were able to uncover regarding Rowdy Roddy Piper. It's interesting that he's one of clearly the biggest stars in professional wrestling history, but it's interesting about how many people, one, didn't realize that he was from Canada, two, thought they knew the whole story of Rowdy Roddy Piper, which we <laughs> naturally blew the doors off last month, and I'm really, really proud of the of the work that we had done on uncovering some unknown and misinformed information, if you will. And three, just the amount of stuff that's out there that is so skewed by media, we'll say. So I'm very pleased that I had some tremendous guests with me on for the previous uh, two-part series 
to uncover some interesting parts about Rowdy Roddy Piper, not just the wrestler. More specifically, Rowdy Roddy Piper the person, obviously Cam Carter was a big part of that, and Rowdy Roddy Piper the cultural icon. And it's funny that we still bring that up because I had just had a conversation with Iad, who was a guest on part two of that program, where there was just recently another Rowdy Roddy Piper reference on Bob's Burgers, which is a tremendous show that I really enjoy watching. So just when you think that the influence of Piper has kind of subsided over the years, guess again. And he's back at it. So just tremendous stuff. Thank you again, everybody, for checking out that program. Once again, if what if this is your first time with the program, and maybe last month was your first time with the Roddy Piper series, great stuff. I highly suggest that you go in the back catalog. I put a lot of time, effort, and energy, we'll say, into these programs. But more specifically than that, it's the guest's that make the program. Today is absolutely on point with that concept. Today I have three tremendous guests who are going to be shedding some light on the topic of this month's episode, Chief Don Eagle. Now, this might be a name that you're familiar with. Possibly this is a name you're familiar with for negative contexts. That point we're going to get into a little bit later in the program today. But I think what we're going to do today is really spell out who Chief Don Eagle was, both as a wrestler and as a man. We're also going to dig in deep into what he meant to Indigenous professional wrestlers, the Indigenous community, as well as the national and international viewing markets of professional wrestling, especially during the advent of televised wrestling. There's many names from that era that most wrestling fans are familiar with. Uh, Gorgeous George comes to mind right off the bat. But I think that we're going to open some eyes about just how influential, just how big Chief Don Eagle was the potential that was left on the table, and how later aspects of his life kind of, we'll say, cast a shadow on the previous work that he did throughout his career. I want to make something implicitly clear before we get into really the meat of today's program. While we are going to be discussing some of the dark aspects especially towards the end of his life. I want to make implicitly clear that this program is not going to be sensationalizing or presenting these, we'll say, aspects out of context. I'm also not going to be putting my personal views on what happened during those events that we're going to be discussing later on in this program. I feel like there are many outlets, some of which I'm going to discuss later on in this program, who have put their personal narratives, we'll say, 
on the Don Eagle story, which I feel is very unfortunate and very unfair to the actual story, which I think is is super interesting, really exhilarating, and really something that has not been explored in great depth and detail in easily 20 plus years, probably since Greg Oliver did on the slamwrestling.net website, which we're going to get into that a little bit later as well. So, I feel like I needed to get into that before, because I I understand that, especially with the content warning at the top of the program, and it is something that is important, and I really do hope and appreciate that people will uh, take a little bit of time with this program, and really let what is talked about, discussed, and brought up to sink in and then move forward with it. And uh, I would encourage anybody who listens to this program, if you have further research or information that you want to find out on Don Eagle, that you would pursue it for sure. Just, I would be mindful of what you are reading and what you are pursuing. If that makes any sense. You guys are a smart audience. I'm pretty sure you can read between the lines and you know exactly what I'm getting at. But I just wanted to put that note out there as well. Also, I feel like I need to add an additional content warning to this episode today. There is talk of domestic abuse. If you or someone you know is suffering from domestic abuse, you are not alone. There are resources available clandestinely, if that's the case, that can help you. Please reach out. You do not need to suffer in silence. You do not need to go through anything alone. Hell, I'm just a a random podcaster from Winnipeg, Manitoba. But if you have, if you need somebody to contact, please, even if it's me, contact somebody. Let somebody know ask for help, reach out. There are resources available. There are people to help. You do not have to go through it alone. Okay. With all that being said, there's a little bit more housekeeping that we're going to get into, and then we're going to jump into today's episode because there is a lot of information to cover. Like I said, we have some tremendous guests to get to, and uh, we are going to have a ton of fun today. There are some ways that you can help support the program because, unfortunately, (laughs) this program, uh, not just as a time suck, (laughs) but there is a a financial responsibility to this show as well. So, if you're able to financially support the show, there are a great many ways that you can do that. Uh, You can look in the Linktree link in the show notes of this program. You can find ways to donate to this program via PayPal. You can also go on buymeacoffee.com slash grappling. You can buy me a beer on there. It is thirsty work doing this podcast after all. You can also use the tip jar function on Good Pods. And best part of all, you can also find the official Grappling with Canada merchandise at grapplingwithcanada.threadless.com. And as I've said many times before, All proceeds of the classic Grappling with Canada logo t-shirt, the one with the Canadian flag, 
all the proceeds of that shirt are going to be donated towards charity. And at the end of the year, I'm hoping that we're going to have a nice check to donate to the Children's Hospital here in friendly Winnipeg, Manitoba. So once again, you can find all that wonderful information in the Linktree link on the show notes of this show. So please take a look. I hope that you can support the program. And if you can't, hey, the best thing you could possibly do is uh, leave a five-star rating and review. Like I said, if you leave a five-star review, I will be happy to read it out on the next available program. Actually, I lied. Absolutely, the best thing you can do is tell a friend about this program. You're probably on your phone right now. You're probably at a computer right now. You probably have access to Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, whatever. Let your friends and family know that you are listening to Grappling with Canada and let them know that what we are doing here is is important stuff. And not just because it's me saying it, but because these stories, if they are not talked about, reported on, passed along, truthfully and factually, then my big fear is that they'll be lost to the sands of time. And uh, clearly, I don't want that to happen. So, once again, pass the program along, and uh, I appreciate each and every one of you for listening to the show. But enough of me rambling on. We are going to get into the show on the other side of this. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Manscaped. Manscaped has the full package that you need for spring cleaning this year. The Performance Package 4.0 is the only tool that you need to keep your boys looking and smelling like the fresh tulips that your partner wants. To start off your spring cleaning, use the Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer to get the most precise shave on your hedges. Did I mention it's waterproof as well? No need to worry about watering your grass with this tool. Equipped with an LED light so you know it'll be a major asset to your new shower routine. Clear your holes and smell the spring air with the Weed Whacker. This nose and ear hair trimmer provides proprietary skin safe technology, which helps prevent nicks, snags, and tugs in those delicate holes. After cleaning your nose, make sure to get rid of that foul ball smell with the Crop Preserver and the Crop Reviver. The Crop Preserver is an anti chafing ball deodorant and a moisturizer, while the Crop Reviver is a spray-on toner for your gimmicks. Keep your boys from sticking your leg and leave them smelling like fresh flowers. Also, you can finish off your grooming routine with the Plow 2.0, the perfect razor for the finest shave on your face. Because, let's face it, if you're using the Lawnmower 4.0 on your balls and then your face, fellas, you're doing it wrong. The Sparta Spring the start of spring also marks the start of Testicular Cancer Awareness Month in April. Manscaped has partnered with the Testicular Cancer Society to bring awareness to t- testicular cancer, men's health, and early cancer detection. Manscaped is committed to raising awareness for the most common form of cancer in men aged 15 to 35 and giving support for fighters survivors, and families impacted by testicular cancer as part of their We Save Balls initiative. Smell oh so fresh and oh so clean this spring. And check yourself 
before you wreck yourself. Get 20% off and free shipping with promo code GWC at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the promo code GWC at manscaped.com. It's time to throw out your old hygiene habits and upgrade your life. And I really want to thank Manscaped for being the fine sponsored for this program, Grappling with Canada. Now, we're going to break this episode up a little bit differently than I normally do. Normally, I would give a brief synopsis of someone's life and career and then kind of get into the interview and conversation aspect of the show. However, today, I think we're going to break that mold a little bit and splice aspects of his life and career in between uh, different conversation segments of the program. But I suppose the best way that we can start off today's program is to talk about the early life of Chief Don Eagle. Carl Donald Bell was born August 25th, 1925, in Ganawake, Quebec. He ended up pursuing a boxing career in 1945 after a brief time working in the steel and construction industry. Now, this is important to note because I feel like this is an aspect of his story that is kind of misreported or not reported on properly. There's been many times in wrestling history where people have exaggerated their sports backgrounds. Case in point is the Rowdy Roddy Piper episode. The difference is today that Don Eagle was actually a Golden Gloves boxing champion. He ended up having a 20-fight career. He had 16 wins and 4 losses. And it is interesting that he ended up starting his boxing career in 1947. This would have been out of Louisville, Kentucky, funny enough. Which is interesting because you figure, you know, somebody from Gautawake, which is just outside of Montreal, Quebec, although he spent quite a bit of time of his life growing up in Ohio, which we're going to talk about later on in the program, you would think that he probably would have started his uh, professional boxing career there. But no, his first professional fight was in Jefferson County in Louisville, Kentucky. He ended up going 4-0 in his first four bouts. Uh, with losing one, he ended up going on another four-win streak while losing one. You can see the pattern here. Ended up on another four-win streak, lost one. Ended up on a third four-win streak, and then ended up losing his final bout. What's also interesting is that he won, of his 16 fights, 6 by decision, which is, you know, uh, an interesting way to win a match, but won 10 of his 16 fights by knockout. Pretty impressive, and like I said, ended up winning the Golden Gloves Championship. Now, after his boxing career had wound to an end, he ended up training for wrestling under his father, Chief Joseph War Eagle, who was himself a former professional wrestler and a former junior heavyweight champion. Now, 
he was a large star during his time, something that we're going to be discussing later on in this program, though he never ended up reaching the highest heights that Chief Don Eagle ended up reaching. Though it is interesting that, you know, Don ended up being the, you know, next generation wrestler ended up surpassing his dad. This is something that doesn't always happen in professional wrestling. There are certain times where it has. Case in point is many of the Hart children surpassed Stu Hart as a professional wrestler. But we've seen countless times throughout history that second and third generation wrestlers sometimes have a hard time breaking out of the shadow of their parent. This was clearly not the case with Chief Don Eagle. Now, over the years, it's been widely accepted that his first set of matches happened just outside of Montreal or in Montreal. However... New information has come to light with some tremendous research by a guest that I'm going to be bringing onto the program right away, which totally changes the course of history as it regards Chief Don Eagle. Jamie Greer has done some tremendous research into the history of the Windsor area wrestling scene, and he uncovered the true starting dates for Chief Don Eagle. And this truly changes the game in terms of the Don Eagle story, but more importantly, adds further context and sheds some light, further light, on the story and misconceptions of Chief Don Eagle. Now, before I bring on Jamie Greer, I'm going to play some classic wrestling audio. This is a match from the 1950s involving uh, Chief Don Eagle and one of his most famous wrestling holds that you are also going to hear quite a bit about coming up in my conversation. So, I'm going to play this classic audio and on the other side, we start rewriting history with Jamie Greer. Don Eagle, who took quite a going over before he was finally able to pull it out. 
Here's Benny Weiss now with the official time. Benny's getting the official name of that hole, too. The time, 11 minutes and 7 seconds. The winner with the bridging Indian Deathlock, Don Eagle. Well, we call that Indian Deathlock for you. He calls it a bridge because he's up in the air on it. It's very similar to the one that Sonny Warcloud employed here a few years ago, the same principle. Except that Sonny had his leg in there, and uh, Don Eagle used his arm and did a bridge with it. Well, there you have Don Eagle, the winner over at Dan Miller, and we'll be back. Joining me on the line tonight, Jamie Greer. Jamie, how you doing, man? Very good. Yourself? Not too bad. It's been uh, a night of wrestling so far for you, so hopefully we put you in the proper mindset for our discussion tonight. Oh, yeah, yeah. For a, a little backstory, because... Um, Obviously, nobody knows what day of the week we're recording. <laughs> this is recorded on Wednesday, so uh, hence hence why our uh, wrestling mindsets are, are in a good spot tonight. But how's everything going in Ontario this uh, during this past little while? It's been all right. The weather's been pretty nice here in Windsor, Ontario. Uh, one of the perks of being the southernmost city. Yeah, a lot more south than I am, that's for sure. Yeah, it was a balmy six degrees out today. Oh, fancy. I think yeah. I think the highest we got was minus sixteen today. <laughs> but we're easing our way out of it. Yeah, exactly. So obviously we've uh, kind of spoiled a little bit of uh, of the reason for having you on the program tonight, but your connection with Windsor is uh, something that has come up in conversation and research in tied in with the. Uh, subject matter that we're talking about tonight, Chief Don Eagle. And there were yes. some there were some interesting facts that you had uncovered uh, in your research for Windsor. But before we get into all of that and our discussion about yes. uh, Chief Don Eagle, uh, give everybody who may not be familiar with yourself a little bit of background about yourself and your relationship with professional wrestling. All right. Well, uh, my name is Jamie Greer. I'm from Windsor, Ontario, as I mentioned. Um, so I was a, was a mu well, musician and I was a mu music journalist here in Windsor, Ontario for about 20 years. Uh, been a wrestling fan since I was a young lad. So that would be like the late seventies, early eighties. Um, about six, seven years ago, I, uh, kind of decided to switch from music to wrestling to try and, and, and uh, so I've been writing. I've been writing. I work uh, for a, a site, Last Word on Pro Wrestling, uh, part of the Last Word, Word on Sports uh, family. Uh, I've written for Pro Wrestling Illustrated and uh, various uh, uh, publications around Windsor, uh, including the Windsor Star. Uh, that was for music, sorry, uh, the Windsor Star. Uh, but um, just in the, in the last. I guess during the pandemic, I just kind of started thinking, you know, because I, I read a lot of history books. I'm a bit of a OCD when it comes to wrestling. <laughs> I, I like to go backwards as well as forwards. And uh, so I read a lot of books and I, you know, read a lot of books from Chuck, uh, Tim Hornabaker and uh, Pat LaParad and uh, a lot of these history books. And I started thinking about, you know, like, I wonder if Windsor has a history, you know, because in some towns are, are just little 
you don't realize what's happened or what's gone through. Yes. Um, and Windsor, Windsor has, uh, uh, has, has for a, a, a city our size, has two members in the WWE Hall of Fame already. Um, Killer Kowalski and Abdul the Butcher are both from Windsor, Ontario. That's correct. And uh, so I started thinking, you know, well, you know, at least that's, that's a start. And then there we, you know, we've got Scott Demore, uh, who runs Impact Wrestling. He's from Windsor, Ontario. Uh, Petey Williams. And then, you know, I started stumbling more stuff, like uh, uh, women's wrestler Sandy Parker. Uh, she's from BC originally. She moved out to Windsor to, to live with some family for a bit, and she was a huge wrestling fan. Got trained as a wrestler in Detroit with uh, Lou Klein. And uh, ended up going to Japan in 1973, I believe. Uh, she won the uh, the world championship for uh, all Japan women's. Uh, she became the first uh, uh, black woman and LGBTQ uh, oh, wow. person to win a world championship. So that gave us a bit more. And it's like, oh, you know, there's a few There's something things. here, like, yeah. Oh, you know, you know, I'll look into it. So I signed up for one of these newspaper websites that has all the papers going back to whenever they started, yep. so to speak. Uh, and just started looking to see, you know, where when wrestling started in Windsor and found the first few exhibitions in 1906. Uh, 1929, one of the Toronto promoters uh, branched out and uh, added Windsor to his territory and... Uh, it's, it exploded after that. They had, we, had, we had a weekly program that was here from 1929 all the way through to about 1960, and then things kind of petered off with TV getting more popular. Um, but uh, So it just became a, a lot more deep and interesting, and I started seeing – so I started – so my first step was to catalog all every single card we've had. Now, thankfully, back then from, uh, in like the 20s to the – 60s they still treated wrestling as being you know on the up and up so to speak yes uh they would poke fun at it but they were they, every the day, next day in the new sports section you would have the complete review of the show oh yes awesome happened in the match and stuff so i mean very much like what you had like if you were reading say like a raw or a dynamite review you know like today on a website that's what was in the sports paper yeah. before the show in your town so i got to, so i started you know reading the feuds and who was working with who and, you know, who was wearing the card. And you see all these people come in, you know, seeing like Dory Funk Sr., you know, coming through as a young person, seeing Nature Boy Buddy Rogers coming through before he's a huge TV star, Gorgeous George coming through here, all these names throughout. And uh, so it was through all this work, which was when I kind of stumbled across the the, the uh, information with uh, Chief Don Eagle, who wasn't a chief yet when he came through Windsor. Um, but uh, so a lot of the, the stuff that I read previous to all this research uh, claimed that uh, Don Eagle started uh, his wrestling career in the Montreal circuit uh, in August of 1945, uh, which which would make sense to, on a sort of super on a surface look at his background because he is from Kananakwe, the, uh, reser- the uh, Mohawk Reservation just outside Montreal there. So, uh, but a, a lot of, like we were discussing earlier off, uh, off, the, off the film there, that uh, he 
but he actually grew up in the Cleveland, Ohio area uh, because his dad, Chief War Eagle, was a famous uh, wrestler in the 1910s to the 1930s, um, worked out there. So he ended up sort of growing up there. He was a Cleveland uh, Golden Glove boxer. And he, so he started off in that area, and uh, so he started off in the Ohio and the Michigan uh, territories uh, in the early 40s there. And he ended up coming through uh, Windsor in February of 45, which is about seven months before uh, the Montreal debut. The Montreal circuit. So he kind of came through here. He was here for about six months, um, had some good, had some sort of, main event matches in the Windsor area. They weren't exactly big names he was facing. They would have been bigger names out, you know, inside of the area, but, you know, names like Bert Ruby and, uh, who were, you know, some of the earlier names there, but, uh, his, his dad was, uh, along with him. His dad, Chief War Eagle was, uh, his manager, his second, as they called in his papers, <laughs> they didn't call managers or valets. You had a second. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, his dad was his second and, uh, then he was off, and he went to Montreal, and Montreal, of course, was one of the biggest markets in North America at the time, so he became a big star out there, heading back to his sort of home territory, so to speak, and uh, the rest was history, and then TV came along a couple of years later, and he became a pretty big star on TV. Yeah, made quite the name for himself, and, and obviously that's uh, something we're going to expand upon uh, later on in this program as well but a couple of points that I wanted to hit on just and then we'll, we'll kind of bear down on some of this information and I know that uh you know some people might be wondering well you know what are a couple of you know first nations people from from just outside of Montreal doing in Cleveland or in Detroit well reason for that for um people may not understand is a lot of the Mohawk territory spanned into Detroit and into Cleveland as well. And what a lot of them were doing down there is steel work and iron work. So you would have, and and it's been documented there, there was generations upon generations of Mohawks from Ganawake, from, oh, what's the, from the Oka Reserve, uh, from yeah. from the, the other reservations in and around Montreal specifically because that was their territory who would go down to Detroit, go down to New York. Actually there's, there's um, footage and pictures of uh, Mohawk uh, first nations, people working on the, I believe it's the uh, empire state building. Crazy enough. So, so there, there's a long lineage of, of Mohawks from the Montreal area who, who have been, all down, and a lot of them don't necessarily call themselves American or Canadian. They would have like an Iroquois passport. So that the, there's a yeah, whole there, yeah. there's a yeah. whole layer of of why. So it it sounds funny that there'd be yeah. you know a couple of First Nations guys down in you know yeah, boxing yeah. or wrestling in Cleveland, but it's not when you kind of understand the the, the geopolitical absolutely, landscape at that point in time. Yeah. And then the other portion that you brought up and we had, this is going to kind of tie into something that we had discussed off air uh in terms of someone who was a big part of being the intermediary and a name that you brought up that i want you to yes. to bring up again but so uh chief war eagle was down in the states making a name for himself like you said 
essentially lived in Cleveland, but that's not, he wasn't there specifically for bringing wrestlers down or, or networking uh, First Nations no, wrestlers he was, he down there. He was there mostly for, he was, he was there to work. He was yes. there to work pretty much. This was at the end of his career now. Yes, and so there there was a name that we had discussed off air, and who was kind of like the networker. So how, what was the relationship yeah. between uh, Chief War Eagle, Chief Don Eagle, him, and then the other uh, First Nations wrestlers that were come through the territory? Well, so um, one of the name a name that I that I came across uh, in studying the Windsor stuff was uh, so around the 19, early nineteen forties. Uh, Harry Light, who, for those who don't know, was uh, uh, he was the promoter, uh, bookie, bookmaker, the book of man uh, for Detroit's uh, territory. Um, and in 1948, he was one of the original co-founders or, of the NWA. Um, he uh, was sort of, he was good, had a good working relationship with uh, Al Haft, who ran the Ohio Territory. And uh, so they both kind of used Windsor as uh, almost like a developmental, um, where a lot of the, their younger guys who were there were kind of, you know, get them some more ring time, some more working in front of a crowd. Uh, they would send them to Windsor. Um, and one of the names that I came across that was used quite a bit was a gentleman named uh, Frankie Clemens. Uh, of course, the spelling in old newspapers, I've seen it spelled like Clemens, like, <laughs> is it, like Roger Clemens, like C-L-E-M-O-N-S. I've seen it spelled like uh, um, like E-N-S or O-N-S. Do you ever like come across the O-N-D-S or whatever, you know, Clemens? I guess it's one of those things that what people are calling in their story, people are transcribing. That's it. right, yeah. <laughs> uh, there was no Google the Translate back government. in the day. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I would see uh, this gentleman named Frankie Clemens, who was from Battle Creek, Michigan, and he was a Cherokee, uh, Cherokee Indian in the U.S. Uh, Battle Creek, Michigan. There, yeah, he did, he toured, did a lot of work in the Midwest. He would occasionally go other places like the East and stuff like that. But he, I would say, his, his main bread and butter was the Ohio and Michigan circuits. Um, and uh, he was used for, for. He was one of those utility guys that uh, uh, he looked. He didn't. He was never the big star. He was never the main event guy. I never. I didn't see. He was. He worked about twenty years almost in the Windsor oh, wow. circuit, and he never. He never, uh, he never seemed to, he was never the focal point of a big feud or a big angle. Uh, but he was one of those guys that he would work with the young guys in the first match. He, uh, he, could, he could carry mid-card mid feuds for a couple weeks to get somebody up to the next level. Uh, and once or twice a year, he might get a big, you know, a big, a big match. You know, he was a fill-in too. He also refereed quite a bit. He also refereed quite a bit. So he seemed to be one of those utility guys that, uh, uh, and Harry Light was the, like I said, was running the Windsor shows. So uh, he was part of Harry Light, Harry Light's crew that uh, uh, helped a lot there. Uh, but I noticed that one of the things was he was one of the guys that seemed to work with um, a lot of the indigenous uh, native wrestlers when they came through. Like he he was working with the, uh, Don Eagle when he first came through in '45 there. Um, but Frankie Frankie played a heel. 
Um, so he was, and he was a bit rough. Like he lost a lot of his matches by DQ. Yeah. Um, so he was a guy that you know he could make your he made new guys look like heroes. Off <laughs> yeah. the back kind of a thing. But made him work for it, I'm sure. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so uh, it was a guy. Uh, his, uh, his name was Indio Yakui, and I probably butchered that. I'll spell it Y A Q U I. Uh, somebody can maybe post a comment or contact and tell us how badly I pronounced that. <laughs> but that's a, that's a, a Mexican indigenous. Uh, uh, this this guy ended up becoming uh, known as Chief Lone Eagle. Uh, there was also another one from Oklahoma, I believe, uh, Bach Estes, his name was, and then Chief White Owl. But these were all indigenous native uh, wrestlers that came through that uh, Clemens, it seemed like he had a hand in sort of helping push some indigenous uh, wrestlers through. And they all seemed to be the faces, too. Like, it, it, like, it seemed like, we you know, with, with the Germans and the Japanese, a lot of times they would automatically make the ethnic people the villains. Yeah. I mean, obviously they had to cut the backdrop of World War II and stuff, but um, they definitely seemed to push them mostly as a face. Um, some of the I haven't seen many pictures of Frankie Clemens, but he definitely uh, if they if they hadn't if they didn't keep mentioning that he was Cherokee, uh, you can see he's got some in, some indigenous features, but they you know they, they they cut his hair and he didn't he didn't wear the ceremony dress and everything like that. Uh, so they kind of made him. Not appear so much, uh, and then they used him as, as the as the heel. Um, but he definitely seemed to be one of those guys that he seemed to go to bat for. Um, but I know when at one point near the end of uh, they briefly turned Frankie uh, into into more of a face. Uh, about three or four months into uh, uh, Don Eagles running Windsor, uh, and they kind of made a big deal that Frankie had taken him back to his farm so to speak in, in battle creek to train him for he had, he had a title match against one of the regional yeah uh, like it was like a the michigan version of the world light heavyweight belt yeah <laughs> uh, <coughs> so that and for a couple of weeks they you know they were running stories that you know don eagles you know over battle creek he's training with frankie's frankie's toughening them up you know so in, uh, insert your 80s training massage or montage oh, yeah, here yeah, totally. for yeah, sure. You got, <laughs> yeah, you got a Rocky montage for sure. So it's cool reading stuff like that, but it, it definitely came across that uh, that Frankie was was probably very instrumental in uh, helping Don Eagle get to where he was. I'm sure, if I dug a bit deeper, he probably he probably was wrestling Don Eagle in in Michigan as well as uh, Ohio uh, just prior to. Uh, coming up, so, uh, but that was a cool little thing, is finding people that probably deserve more flowers, uh, I mean, there's not a lot of them, so I'm relying on sifting through sports pages from yes. multiple cities and towns, uh, but, so, he's definitely somebody I'm going to be digging in a lot more in the, over the next year, but, uh, I definitely think he was an instrumental guy, because, yeah, because Chief Lone Eagle wouldn't have, or Chief, Chief War Eagle, his, uh, Don Eagle's dad, definitely was, he wasn't really wrestling by this point anymore. He he was wrestling in, like, 1915. Like, so he yes, he predated Don by quite a, quite a few years. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then you had mentioned as well um, that during that time, 
Chief Warhill was he was the manager at that point for Don. It it, it was, was yeah, you know, or he, a second as, as you had phrased it. Yeah, yeah. One of the notes in the papers they refer to them. They didn't call them managers or valets uh, like we use now, or or advocates or whatever you want to call. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, they called them seconds in the paper. So you know, like somebody seconding them. You know, like in a in a boxing match, you have your second at the ring there. Um, but yeah, Chief War Eagle kind of came out because he still had a bit of a, of a of a name. You know, it would be like you know Arn Anderson now managing some Cody Rhodes or what have you. Yes. So yeah, it was, so he came out for the first uh, first couple of years. He was uh, the second for Don Eagle to kind of help bring up some bring some recognition to him and establish some family lineage in the whole the whole gimmicks. Now, there's a couple of points that I just want to circle back to quickly. And the first one yeah. is uh, in terms of First Nations wrestlers being mostly portrayed as faces. And I know that a lot of people will, you know, especially focus in on American history and, and how the portrayal of oh, First yeah. Nations people has not been kind over the years. But yeah. dur- during this period of time, you know, the early 40s to, to the mid-50s, and even a little bit beyond, because I want to say it was still popular, that aspect of it, into the mid-60s. But there was a large fascination, especially in America, with with the, the red man, as they call them. Clearly not oh, yeah, politically yeah. correct nowadays, but there, there was a big uh, subsect of not just wrestling, but you know, media, uh, books, whatever. There was, there was a lot of focus and and a lot of, of wanting to learn more about this culture. And then when you have someone like, you know, Chief War Eagle, you know, introducing his son, but they've got the big war headdresses on and they, they look super imposing and you're not used to seeing people like this. It's, it's instantly, it's, it's that fascination, right? So I, it, Absolutely. I mean, it's it's one of the things you look back and you go, oh, that's look how stereotypical. Like ninety eight percent of all indigenous wrestlers were. I mean, even even up until the nineties, pretty much. I mean, um, I mean, Tatanka was still very much. Yes, that's the, true. Yeah. The, 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 you have to you have you have to be in tribal dress. You can't. Um, but yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I mean, one of the things I noticed. I mean. Uh, there's a, there was a lot of African American wrestlers uh, coming through Windsor as well uh, during the 30s to the, the 60s, because uh, Canada was obviously uh, slavery had been banned in Canada for you know before the, the Civil War. And not that we were uh, there was no prejudice and racism was cured. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it didn't have the segregation in the wrestling as much. That, you know what I mean? That the, uh, it wasn't. It wasn't like Memphis or or Mid South, for example. Yeah, like where they had they had they had Negro World Champions. And, yes, know, they, 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 it was like it was like the, like, like the know, whites and blacks would never like, meet in a match. Yeah, they right. It was yes. Yeah, it was, it was it was black versus black and white versus white. There was no. It was it was segregated wrestling. Um, like on the, on the very, I think it's the second or third card. There's they've already. Uh, it was a guy named Jack Nelson who was uh, an African American from Alabama, I believe, or Tennessee. Uh, but he was on the cards, and he had one of the first angles. So I mean, um, 
I think the North was a little better for that, but still, some reading some of the descriptions they have for the the, uh, the Asians and the African Americans and the the indigenous wrestlers, um, their hearts in the right place for the time that they're trying really hard to say. You know, they're they're great wrestlers, but there's always one or two words. Yes, it's just kind of condescending that it's almost like. Uh, Yeah, yeah. You can't you can't read the articles with twenty twenty two eyes, right? You you almost have to. No, 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 no. I mean, and, and obviously not excusing it even back then, but it, again, you brought up the good point of like they're trying to frame it for their their presenting uh, audience, if you will, kind of thing. So yeah, they have yeah, to. Yeah. They're trying to phrase it a certain way to to get the point across while still yeah. using the. Uh, terminology of the yeah. time we'll say <laughs> yeah 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 but no no but it's uh it's been, it's been fascinating and i mean don eagle was a was a guy that uh i mean it's a tragic story his story is tragic i mean he was he was up there you know he was up there with gorgeous george and um you know like Lou Fez and guys like that. He was like one of the first big breakout stars in, in, in the TV, in the TV realm. And uh, he just got hurt, injured, and injured early, unfortunately, or earlier, too early into his career, and that just caused problems. And then, of course, he had his rather tragic ending at the end of a gun. Yes. And, and obviously, we're going to expand on that a little bit later in this program as well tonight. Um, but there's a couple of things I wanted to, to, uh, focus on as well, still in terms of Windsor and the surrounding areas, because this is another bit of discussion that you and I had had off air. And so I want to kind of bring everyone else up to speed. And a lot of people will automatically assume that with obviously Windsor's proximity to Toronto, that it, it would have been. Uh, a subsidiary or a feeder for Toronto, but what you've been able to to uncover is that no, Windsor was actually more of a feeder for uh, Detroit or the Ohio territory. So, can, can you expand a little bit more on that? Yeah, uh, in a way, um, Windsor was kind of like the two hundred five live for Detroit. <laughs> well put. Um, uh, because I mean. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, I've seen a lot of, a lot of uh, sites that have, have, have dabbled on looking into Windsor a little bit. Um, yeah, I've just naturally put it in because Toronto is our closest big, was our closest big uh, territory in Canada. Uh, but uh, the Tunnies actually did, historically did terrible in Windsor. Uh, they tried a couple times to come in and take over as the head booker. Um and uh, I think they had two, maybe three attempts, and uh, not one of them lasted longer than about three months. Now, obviously, years. we're extrapolating a little bit because we weren't around at that time. But why? Why do you think their attempts failed? Was it just they they didn't understand the market, or, or what? What's your perception of what yeah, happened? Yeah, I think they didn't understand the market. Um, the, re- now, the reason why I say that they were the two hundred five live for Detroit was. Um, because Detroit, Detroit, a lot of people don't realize that Detroit is, well, A, it's north of us. We're one of the few American cities that can say America is north of us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Detroit, Detroit is, uh, you know, it's a 15-minute drive. 
Like for my, I can drive to to where the Red Wings play in about 15, 20 minutes if it's smooth sailing at the tunnel. So ah, the pizza oven. Detroit's, oh yes, <laughs> yeah. Windsor joke is jokingly referred to as South Detroit because uh, we're that close. We're essentially another suburb of Detroit that's just cut off with a, with a river across us. Um, so uh, for a good for most of most of that from twenty nine to sixty, most for most of that we were uh, where like like I mentioned earlier, where a lot of the, the smaller, where a lot of the younger guys starting out would come in, uh, but. Because Detroit was right there and they had Kobo Arena or the Olympia or whatever, whatever arena they were using at the time, uh, Detroit got all, all the big heavyweight names. Like Jim Londos would go there and sell to 20,000 people. You know, uh, Luth Des would be there. Harley Race would be there. Uh, you know, Dory Funk Jr. would be there. All the all the, the superstar big, big names were there. Yes. So, they, so for when they were booking... Uh, Windsor, they specialized more in the junior heavyweights and the light heavyweights. Like it was so. Um, in a way, it was it was a good idea because it meant they could keep the heavyweights that they knew were going to draw, you know, that many people. Um, but I mean, obviously, Windsor people are driving over to Detroit to see these shows at the big arena. Uh, so I mean, they tried it once in a while, but that that's why. Uh, uh, the Tunnies always failed was they would always come and try and do a show that was too similar to what Detroit had just done a, you know two weeks before in Detroit yes. and they all saw that so you'd have a guy who would, who would, might have sold out of, you know 12,000 people in Detroit two months ago and he comes back to Windsor and 600 people show up because it's like well we see him all the time in Detroit yeah. we're not going to drive over there or whatever uh, so they wanted something different so it was a lot more of the, the smaller guys um Antonio Rocca came through here, um, but it was a lot of the, more of the smaller guys like like Bert Ruby and Louis Luke Klein, Louis Klein, uh, who were two who went on to become hugely influential trainers. Um, but the Sheik, uh, Leaping Larry Shane, uh, a whole bunch of different guys that kind of came through. So there was more of a Jim Haiti, yeah, where he was from. Indiana, maybe, but it was more of the junior heavyweights, like a lot of world junior heavyweight titles or light heavyweight titles uh, were defended in Windsor. We didn't really get the, we would get the like, Luthez wrestle here once, I think. Uh, like it, it wasn't a heavyweight town. So that's why I was saying, you know, it's more like 205 Live. That, so it became where it became like they could build up the, the, uh, the smaller guys, yes. the, the technical wrestlers, the those kind of things, the brawlers. Um, and then Detroit got the superstars. When uh, when the Tunnies came down, they would bring. I mean, they brought down Whipper Billy Watson uh, several times. Um, but Windsor is is a place, and, and it, you know, I, it, I noticed this even when it's with um, yeah, music or what have you. Is Windsor's a fiercely? They would much like it's it's a, it's a union town. It's it's you know it's auto workers and everything else. So it's fiercely loyal of, of its local people yes so you know if you're from detroit or you're from windsor then they'll cheer and root you on and everything else and they don't take too kindly to toronto <laughs> to so 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 there was always windsor and detroit guys throughout pepper throughout the roster but whenever the tunnies came through they wouldn't use any local guys there would always be guys from toronto or 
what have you, and or guys that had just become through Detroit. So they did, they did, they just never did well. And that was one of the things that actually killed the Detroit or the Windsor area in the, in the late in the early '60s was when uh, Harry Light kind of lost power in Detroit, and uh, Jim Barnett and Johnny Doyle from the Chicago territory came in. Uh, and kind of strong-armed taking over the NWA territory in Detroit, uh, they took over Windsor, and they ended up doing the same thing because they didn't even want to use Detroit wrestlers, even in Detroit. They wanted Jeez. they essentially wanted Detroit to be an extension of Chicago, so they're using all Chicago wrestlers. So, I mean, that's why they ended up leaving Detroit altogether, and they went to Australia and opened the first uh, World Championship. Wrestling. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> And that, that's when the Sheik took over. And the Sheik uh, kind of uh, gave Windsor back what it had in it to a degree. But I think by that, a lot of the damage <clears throat> had been done. <clears throat> but yeah, for 30, for, yeah, for 30 years almost, uh, Windsor was essentially a feeder system for um, uh, the, Windsor, or sorry, the, the Michigan and the Ohio and the Midwest. Uh, and then Jack Britton ended up coming to work for Harry Light as well, who uh, uh, he was a big part of the Montreal circuit. So um, we also got a lot of the Montreal uh, French Canadian stars coming through that, as they, you know, that would kind of be their last stop before they were sent into the U.S. on a tour. Um, uh, Maurice Mad Dog Vachon actually got unmasked in Windsor. He was a masked wrestler when he arrived here called The Shadow. <laughs> yeah, that's in, right, too. In 1953, and uh, by about July, he got unmasked as Maurice Vachon, and then he was off. And then he was the Mad Dog, and good times. Wrestler's history. I find it, yeah. it's, it's fascinating that... The, the couple of points that you just brought up with one Windsor being kind of a feeder system fits in perfectly with, with the um, Don Eagle kind of story of, you know, getting, yeah. getting him in, getting him ready there. Cause it seems like it's, it's almost a perfect fit at, especially at that time seemed like a perfect yeah. storm almost of, of getting him ready for his role later in life. And then the point that you just brought up about them them being a feeder for Montreal, which obviously we know, you know, yeah. several months after his his, you know, now discovered actual debut, he yeah. has his, you know, written about debut in, in Montreal. So yeah. it's it's interesting to, to see kind of this progression, but how all of these places are linked. It's interesting that. Uh... Like I was saying, that it, it, a lot of you'll see a lot of I see a lot of patterns where it's uh, a lot of the Ontario and the Quebec wrestlers would come, and Windsor would be kind of like their last. They would spend you know, I say three three to six months in in Windsor. Um, obviously, they'd be working in Michigan as well, but they were but they would they were you know pretty much every week, maybe three times a, a month, uh, working programs in Windsor. And then they would be launched into the U.S. And that's when they would, you know, then they would go and start working the territory. So it yes. was kind of like Windsor, kind of like your last kid stop in Canada <laughs> before you get sent to the rest of the world kind of a thing. But Don, here's Don Eagle, a Canadian. Uh, well, by birth, obviously Mohawk uh, by nation. Um, but actually, Windsor was actually his 
gateway into Canada. That's Canada right, yeah. And the, the world that he, he, wasn't, uh, he wasn't coming from Montreal to go into the U.S. He was coming from the U.S. into Canada to get sent to Montreal to get... So it was kind of a, a reverse there. But yeah, it, it was kind of a gateway of, uh, of getting guys ready. And man, reading the descriptions... It sounded like it was ECW every every week. I mean, the blood that they're talking about. I mean, there there were so many matches where that were just stopped because a guy jumped out, missed something, smashed his head open. Jesus. Like, there's, there's so many complaints to the letter the letters saying that they can't believe how violent it is. <laughs> like it's, one of the, one of the the biggest uh, weapons that the, the villains use. This is the 1940s and the night and. Uh, by the way, this isn't like 1970s. This is 1940s. Uh, one of the biggest weapons that the heels use is a coat hanger. A oh. metal coat hanger. Because they, they, could, they could open the, the, the triangle part. Yes. You could pull, you can pull it out to, to be big enough to, to fit around a guy's neck so you could choke him with it. Right? <laughs> but then they would they would hook the, 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 the hook part round and then as they're strangling a guy, oh. they could... They, they could just gig them, <laughs> Jesus! Like there's descriptions, there's descriptions of this in the in the paper. Like it's just like things like I'm like, oh my god, people are thinking saying, oh my god, I can't believe they're using a pizza cutter. It's like they were using coat hangers. Yeah. <laughs> pizza cutters at least have, 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 have an edge that is designed oh. to cut something somewhat totally. It's actually designed to cut things, whereas like a coat hanger is not. <laughs> It's not meant for that. Oh, god damn. Like, like they're constantly talking about, there, there was always a St. John's Ambulance uh, park. Yeah, in, in, if it was in the arena, it would be in, in the venue itself. But the other one is it was outside. <clears throat> so many uh, reviews I'm reading up the shows. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, where it's like, oh, but then so-and-so is being stretchered off of the, <laughs> to the uh, St. John's Ambulance where you have to have 13 stitches. Oh yeah, or so and so had to spend the night in Hotel Du Hospital. Oh yeah, it's it, it's. I get automatically the picture in my mind is from uh, the first Slapshot movie when uh, oh, yeah. when he's got the ambulance parked outside. Oh yeah, just hit the siren a couple of times or whatever, eh? Like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. But again, it's it's so fascinating that. He, these stories we would never know about, right? Unless, unless you were going back and and you and you want to find them, right? Which is like how how you get from okay, I want to learn more about this person to now you're learning about what the territory was actually like to who was in the territory and how many people go well, go through well, in in a certain amount of time. Well, it's, it's like there's territories within territories within territories. Like, yes. I think we've gotten to the point where there's so much time from the NWA and everything else that it's almost like it's been you see, everyone sees the maps of you know like okay this this is mid-south this is mid-Atlantic this is uh, you know this is California this is Pacific Northwest Stampede Territory Maple Leaf Wrestling Territory so you kind of start to you know you get a visualize of the map you don't realize that okay yes this is uh, uh, this is the Detroit Territory this is the Ohio Territory but there's little there's little territories within that yes it's yeah it's crazy it's like uh, it's like farm teams for NHL teams yeah pretty well yeah very very apt description like, like it's like 
triple A or double A. It's like, oh, it's time to go to North Bay. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously we've we've gone into great detail of Don Eagle's actual start in uh, professional wrestling, but do you know through your research did he come back through Windsor after he was established? He did. He came back. Uh, uh, he came back in 1953. Um, it was just after his back injury. Yes, I was going to say that it must have been right around that time. Yeah, uh, he came back with uh, Billy Two Rivers. That's right. Uh, who was essentially he was like his he was like his Dick Grayson, his ward. He had uh, gone back because when he hurt his back there. And, uh, an unfortunate back injury that pretty much plagued him the rest of his life. That kind of uh, derailed him, so to speak. That he couldn't do as much of the stuff that made him the star. But um, he went back to kind of heal up in Montreal there at Kananakway. And uh, uh, he found this, this guy, uh, who Billy Two Rivers, uh, who was going through, you know, problems. Not, you know, not doing well. And uh, he, so Billy, or sorry, Don Eagle pretty much rehabbed himself to get back into wrestling by training this kid how to wrestle. I think he was about 17 or 18. And uh, he took him on, took him back out in the road with him, uh, Billy Two Rivers. And uh, Billy would become a huge star himself. Yes. Uh, I don't think he quite, I mean, in the UK, he was probably pretty close to Don Eagle's run, <clears throat> TV run, but um so yeah, he came through in '53 briefly. Uh, again, sort of both. Now he was coming from Montreal, bringing Billy Two Rivers back into the U.S. with him. <coughs> um, so he came back briefly for, I think it was about two or three weeks. It wasn't very long. It was uh, it was a quick sort of a return stop as he was going through the border, I guess. Uh, he did come back again in '59 and '60 for a couple more sporadic shows, but. Uh, At that point, that must have been when his, that's when he was just either right before retirement or, or shortly after due to the back. Yeah. Cause something like he blew, blew a bunch of discs out. And I mean, back surgery back then is not, not what anything close to what it is today. No, no, no. Cause yeah, he was in constant pain. Because he, he would, you know, he would have pretty serious. Uh, he was drinking and everything else by the end there. That he, I think he, he finally retired to sixty-five, but I think he'd pretty much hit semi-retirement by the late fifties, early sixties there because he just couldn't do it in a full-time schedule. He would do the occasional appearance here and there, but for the most part, he was pretty much retired by the by the early sixties there. And yeah. But it's crazy, like just how how uh, impactful his run was, but also how short it was too. When you look at it yeah. in the grand scheme of it, it's it's a shame. And and, and like we've been saying, right? If a, a lot of the information, especially here in Canada, is is not is not kept very well, right? We were also discussing off air how it's it seems to be a lot easier to get a lot of the American wrestling results, uh, especially with the boxing career. And that's, we didn't even touch on that part of it, but I mean, it's, it's a lot easier to find that than it is to find what he did here in Canada, especially 
you know, the Windsor stuff was essentially mothballed until it was discovered. So it just, uh, it's fascinating that somebody who is that popular rose that much. Just, it's like the Neil Young song, right? You just burn out. Yeah. Right. It's, In a lot of ways, he, he almost should have stayed and been more of a Montreal, uh, because, I mean, Montreal, Chicago, New York City, were, well, Boston as well. There's four, probably four, the four biggest. L.A. was pretty close, but that was on the West Coast. But Yeah, I can't, I don't see that he would have been the same star in L.A. I, I could be wrong, no, but no, I, I don't I mean, see that it could have happened. No, no, I mean, he was, he was in the Chicago, uh, that Chicago, the Chicago, New York, Boston, uh, Montreal circuit, but it, I think it, he because uh, the, the whole the whole gorgeous George, uh, the original Montreal screw job, yes. Boston Fast Camp, um, or Chicago Fast Camp, it was called. Um, um, that really kind of uh, derailed his his momentum. I think that was kind of the beginning of the end for him. Um, not so much from his standpoint that his work got worse or anything, but it was it was a shady kind of power play. Like the Al Hafta we've talked about, the Ohio promoter uh, was kind. He kind of had the, the booking rights for Don Eagle because he was from Ohio. Yes, he was based out of Ohio. Um, so, like I was saying, how Al Haft was friends with uh, Al Haft was a had secret alliances. So he was. Uh, on one hand, he was friends with Fred Kohler, the main NWA uh, promoter from Chicago. But there was like an outlaw promoter from Chicago that uh, he also had um, an alliance with. And that, I forget his name. It's like Schwartz. No, it wasn't Schwartz. I forget the, I forget the name. But um, And he was kind of in, in cahoots with uh, um, Paul Bowser from Boston, who had the uh, the first AWA, not related at all to Burning Gun. Yeah, totally years, different. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, they kind of like like Don Eagle. Like when by that point was was in the NWA. He's, he's he had like a, he was one of Luthez's first feuds after Luthez won, uh, won the NWA World Championship. And, and he was handpicked, I believe, right? Did, was it not that yeah. L- Luthez had handpicked him? Because at, at that Luthez time... Luthez was a handpicked. Yes. Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. He, he picked who he, wanted to, who he wanted to match up with. He, he, had a, he had a feud with Orville Brown, who was the first uh, NWA World Champion, the one right before Luthez there. Uh, but he was fighting everybody. I mean, he was fighting Gordon's George. Like, that was the, that, that's the TV money draw right yes. there is Don Eagle versus Gorgeous George. Um, and there was even talk at one point that that Don Eagle was going to become an NWA world champion, you know, down the line there. Um, but then they did, uh, he, um, they had him, they had picked uh, Don Eagle to beat uh, Frank Sexton, who had been the AWA world champion. The, the AWA was one of the last ones to kind of get on board with the NWA's world champion. So this was, you know, 1950, whatever it was. And uh, Don Eagle beat him. He'd been champ for five years. Like, that's like, that's like beating Bruno. Yeah. Like, this was, this was uh, and Boston was a huge territory, but it wasn't part of the NWA at this point. So this was uh, huge news. And then, you know, seven days later in Chicago, uh, for this 
seedy other promoter, not Fred Kohler's uh, promotion. Uh, there's all kinds of rumors that they told Gorgeous George to shoot on him. They don't know if it was if that's true or if they told the ref to fast count. But whatever it was, you know, he did the one, two, three in a span of a minute of one, one and a half. And Gorgeous George walked out with the belt. I mean, they didn't even give Gorgeous George the belt. It, yeah, it that's like, right. They got him out, yeah. Um, I mean, Don Eagle won it back a few weeks later, whatever it was, but uh, that was on TV, the big loss. And uh, it kind of, I mean, you can watch that. It's on YouTube. You can watch that. You can watch the fast count match. Um, But it definitely seemed to, it was almost like that they intentionally, that he was kind of an incident that Al Haft probably wanted somebody else instead of Luthez to be the world champion and so, or I don't know. Maybe he wanted someone instead of. Maybe he was up. He was jealous because they were looking to take Don Eagle away from him. But whatever it was, they really tried to dismantle his buzz that, that Don Eagle had, and uh, he, he definitely had some opportunities. But it definitely seemed like he was on a, a skyrocket, and then that whole thing kind of stuttered it. Yes, and then. It, and, and then it was like, you know, a couple of years after that, it's when he injured his back. So he never fully recovered from the title loss. And then gets the injury that he never quite recovered from either, which just led to his mental health issues and his physical issues. And of course, which led to his, his demise, unfortunately. Now, in your research, uh, going through all the newspapers, when he had passed away, did that make the Windsor News then? Or they weren't they weren't uh, focused on pro wrestling at that point yeah, in the in the sports sections, I the, guess. Yeah, eh? by the sixties, the, the wrestling coverage they would like up up until about the mid sixties. Uh, like I said, there were there was previews, there was interviews, there was reviews, there was everything. By the sixties, yeah. I'm, I'm getting the cards off the off the advertisement that, that, that they paid for. They they kind of finally decided. We're not really going to cover wrestling. Uh, so it um, wasn't much the deaths, not much wrestling news made it to the paper anymore. So, um, but no, but I mean, I, I did find a few other articles, but I don't remember any of them being from Windsor, though. It definitely made it in Montreal. Some of the bigger markets uh, did, did talk about it. Yes. But, but yeah, I mean, that's a whole dark side of the ring itself. I mean, there's all kinds of theories from various family members about what happened at the end there. Yes, it's uh, it's a even tale Luthes that. Was talking about... Sorry, go ahead, please. Yeah, even like Luthez was talking about it years later after he died. Because his wife died two years later. Yeah, it's. <laughs> Yeah, like it's, it, it it's, gets dark. It gets dark, dark. Yes, like, very it quickly. Was dark to begin with it, you know, he's, he was, for those that don't know, he was uh, 1966, the year after he officially retired. He uh, he was found dead in his, in his kitchen of, a, of an apparent self, or uh, apparent 
herself got shot wound. Then, then some of the facts started getting a bit weird after that. There was other bullet holes in the walls or something, and did he just miss himself several times? Or yeah, the, uh, was he shooting them? <laughs> and that's uh, yes, that's something that we're gonna dig deep into in a, a later conversation yeah. in the in this <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, program tonight, but. Uh, Boy, and uh, you, uh, it, it's almost a shame to to let that be, you know, kind of the end of the of the story at this point, right? In terms of how much has been rediscovered and how much it. it boy, I I don't know what the proper way to say this is, but it, it's it's almost disappointing that that's the one thing that everybody just falls back on at the end of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Rather, yeah. rather, than, and I'm not saying that everything is, you know, rainbows and unicorns and whatever. It's clearly not, and I'm I'm not also not trying to paint this or look through this uh, with rose-colored glasses, for example. But it, it's it's hard to not, you know, kind of shadow all of this great information with the end of the story. And I th- I think that yeah. I I I think that what we've done, at least on uh, you know with the Windsor portion, is kind of bring a lot of that to light. Yes, we know what happens at the end, but it, it's fascinating to be able to go back and look at what happened before all of that, which I think is well, yeah, is I mean, super before impressive. Got, before we got into wrestling in the forties, he was a, he was a boxer. Um... He didn't go pro, but he was, he was, he was, I believe he was 16 and four. Yeah, that's right. He, he, was, he was, he was a very good boxer. Uh, his dad was a, was a boxer, uh, before he started wrestling too. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, he had a great boxing promise. Uh, he, uh, started hot out the gate. And, uh, like I said, he started in 45 and by 1950, he was, I mean, by 1948, he was, he was facing Orville Brown in 1948. Yeah, he was a huge so, like, star. In three years, he was already a, a contender for the NWA World Championship. Yeah. The 10 pounds of gold. Still my favorite belt. Yeah. Actually, it wouldn't have been the 10 pounds of gold. Not back then, no. Yeah. When was that? Was it about 71 or something like that, that one came in? one that they have right now? Yeah, I want to say Harley Race maybe was the one who debuted that one. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, but yeah, so I mean, he was, uh, you can still see a bunch of his matches on there. I mean, the unfortunate thing is with a lot of these stars are on YouTube, I mean, because a lot of these stars, unfortunately, is that all these early TV shows, most of these stations erased the tape because tape yeah. was so expensive back then that they would just keep filming over it. So, so much is lost. I mean, Billy Two Rivers is still alive. I mean, I wish somebody with, with more connections and uh, uh, funds to document something, to do a documentary, to really get in and talk to some of his surviving family, because Billy Two Rivers is still alive. He's, he's about 83, 86, between, around there. Yeah, I actually had him on season one. We did a, had him yeah. on for a show, yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, 
that was uh, one of the one of my most, and that interview with him still stands, still sticks out to me, right? That's one of my favorite episodes that I've done of this of this program, because we talked for, oh my god, two over two hours, you know, just not just on the program, but just talking, generally speaking, yeah, yeah. and you know, with with Billy. There are things if he wants to talk about it, he'll he'll go all the way with it, right? And yeah. th- there were things that he didn't want to discuss, and I was fine with it. It's his story to tell. But I'm yeah. with you. It would be fascinating to actually have a documentary crew, uh, not only for him and his family, but also the community, because and this is Absolutely. something that this is something that we talked about uh, on the program with him is how everything is passed down orally throughout the community. So while he, he has his stories that he's told and been told over the years, his family has those, but so does the community. So it would be fascinating to, and good God, Lord knows I, I don't have the funds for this or whatever, but it'd be fascinating to, to do an actual series, like a, you know, a mini series of, yeah. How how this all works with each with itself and with each other? Absolutely. I mean, and that's what I think. Like, because I think because uh, like it's tough to tell Don Eagle's story just because of the fact that I mean, he like you said. I mean, I mean like, like I said, when it, it starts with the, with that gorgeous George the, the the screw job, it's like that. Then it's the injury, and then it's and then it's done. The end. And it's kind of like, God, there's three terrible accidents at the end. And yeah. It's like, oh my God. Which, like, which all. We don't get, but, Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, it's just that, that like, like you said, that the, the, the spotlight keeps getting taken from the first half of his, of his story. Yes. It's going, oh, the, the, the back end is, is dark and, and kind of depressing. And it's like, yes, but there was so much more at the beginning that, you don't realize how big a star he was. You know, he was up there. He was a world a world contender. He was a world champion. And two time world champion with the Boston. And started it all in Windsor, funny enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, uh, this has obviously been a, a tremendous conversation. Um, Absolutely. What I what I, we didn't touch on, and I meant to at the start of this all, is obviously we, we've gone heavy with the Windsor project that you're working on, but you also have something else in the works. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Do I? With the book? What do I have? With, with the book, right? Oh, the book. Sorry. Yeah. That's, that's important for research. Yeah, yeah I was trying to give you the Iggy there. Oh, okay. uh. Um, and it's all about just the history of 
wrestling coming into the area and how it's sort of fit into the world. Uh, sort of a look at, at sort of like I was saying, at territory within a territory because we were like a little territorial feeder for uh, Michigan mostly, but also uh, Ontario and uh, and Ohio. Uh, the name is, in case someone goes, hey, that sounds like it is a homage because there's uh, a book, great book by uh, Pat Laprade and Bertrand Hebert uh, about the history of the Montreal scene. It's called Mad Dogs, Midgets, and Screwjobs, the untold story of how Montreal shaped the world of wrestling. So uh, it is a conscious nod, uh, just so people go, hey, that sounds like you And I know yeah, Pat appreciated it, because I, I saw you pop Pat on Twitter there. Yeah, yeah. Actually, and because of that, Pat actually got a hold of me uh, yesterday. He just sent me a DM, and... Uh, I'm not gonna say yet who, because I want to. I don't want to jinx things and all that. But uh, he did pass along some contacts for me that uh, are going to be invaluable. So I will send another shout out to Pat for that because. Uh, oh, tremendous! Yeah, yeah. pretty excited. Uh, yeah, so uh, that's the end game. I mean, it's probably gonna, it's gonna take a while. It's still a lot to go into. Uh, well, you only have time. like a hundred years of of, <laughs> of news to go through, so. <laughs> Well, I, I, I've, I've, right now I've cataloged and gone through and I've written down every card from 1906 until 1990. Um, so I'm pretty much from the beginning up to the modern era. We'll yes. Say. Uh, the modern era after that it is pretty much almost 99% Border City Wrestling, which is our uh, which is our indie promotion, which is also run, owned and run by Scott Demore. Yes. Um, which, that stuff's all easier for me to obtain. I can... Uh, Scott and I have been friends for years, so I can. That is easier to track down information, so I'm going to spend the next year pretty much getting the first 60 years set. dialed in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. So I've got every all the cards. So now I'm uh, next stage is to go through all these and find the find the narratives, find the feuds, find who the regulars were, uh, and all that stuff. So yeah, that's. Uh, that's how I stumbled across with the Don Eagle stuff. Because I was a bit shocked to see him arrive in the story earlier than I thought he yeah, would show up. Yeah, well, and you, uh, like I said off the top of the program, you weren't the only one who was shocked. And uh, yeah. it's it's funny how you can you can dig in and research and, and do all the stuff, and, and it's that one random tidbit just changes the game. And it's, it's crazy how, yeah. how, how it happens like that. Yeah, yeah, and it's, uh, it really, it's one of those things that, you know, I'm glad I did this now and not, say, five years ago or something, because a lot of these books, like, I got a whackload of Tim Hornabaker's stuff, and there's so many great uh, writers that do great documenting history that, you know, stumbling across a lot of these older names that if I hadn't read so-and-so's book, you know, a year yes. ago or two years ago or years ago, that this name would have, might have, I might not have keyed in, you know, and kind of gone, oh, well, why is that important? But now I'm seeing things, and it's like, oh, yeah. So, I mean, it's, uh, thankfully, my wife, my, I can say that my uh, obsession with reading and collecting history books about wrestling has <laughs> is, is paid off. Uh, and like I said at the top of the program, you have quite the quite the collection in the background there. So, obviously, our, our listeners can't see it, but, yeah, it was quite, quite the sight for me to 
to get a glimpse at at least. So yeah, it's super tremendous. Yeah, yeah my, all, all the workbooks all sitting here. Yeah, all my resource books. Yeah, good times. Good <laughs> the best of times. And obviously dealing with wrestling history, so obviously something very, very near and dear to myself as well. Yeah, I mean, it just makes everything more interesting. I mean, when you when you re- you see that there's so much about wrestling today that people say is so far away from what it was, and then you realize it's not really. I mean, I've come across some absolutely silly gimmicks when people. People say things about you know like Danhausen or someone like that. And yeah. <laughs> like, oh, who are these kind of stupid things? Then it's like, well, I, I found a guy who was in an ad for uh, coming in. He was a he was an American wrestler, but he wasn't doing very well under his name. So we put on this crazy mask in 1950. He was called Zuma, the man from Mars. <laughs> he had like a space helmet and everything else, and it's like. They had some pretty ridiculous gimmicks back then, too. Yeah, yeah. It's not just everybody being very nice and very evil today. Yeah. <laughs> I can't do a Dan Housen voice. That was awful. <laughs> That's all right. And, you know, people don't realize, I mean, because um, Dan Housen's from Detroit, so we, we kind of, uh, um, he uh, sort of, started in this area he was also you know up in the michigan ohio area so he's you know when he was donovan danhausen he was almost like a mma style kind of you know he didn't have the makeup he was more of a shoot fighter he yeah. was more of a technical guy and but he realized that there's a million guys doing that right now so you know as most things he, he does he does less work in the ring puts it on some makeup and now he's selling merch through the roof so. yeah exactly Who's really winning? Yeah. That's the very definition of work smarter, not harder. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, Jamie, this is an absolute treat for me, and I can't wait for when the book comes out. I'll be keeping tabs on that uh, throughout throughout the next... I'm going to go back and check out that Billy Two Rivers interview. I highly recommend it. Uh, Not to plug my own stuff on my own program, but... Well, no, I didn't realize, so I'm, I'm excited to hear that. Now, before we proceed further with the Don Eagle story, there is something that came up in conversation with Jamie Greer that I want to expand upon a little bit more. Now, naturally, quite a bit of our conversation is not following a proper timeline set of events, right? It's not like we talked about the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. There are events that happened throughout the time period, but not set in a continual time frame, if you will. One of those events that we had talked about was the back injury that Chief Don Eagle had sustained. And I want to discuss this because it's going to play into later conversations that we have during the course of this program. So, during a 1953 match with the notorious Hans Schmidt, Eagle was thrown over the top rope and into the ringside chairs, which ended up damaging several spinal discs and breaking two ribs. This left him in a full body cast, and doctors told him that he would never wrestle again. But Eagle's belief, faith, and love of wrestling pulled him through this time. As he recuperated, he created new moves in his mind, which he believed would make him even more technically competent than he was before. He took a year off in total 
during which time he began training Billy Two Rivers. You can hear much more about that in my episode with Billy Two Rivers in Season 1 of Grappling with Canada. So I just wanted to clarify that a little bit more to provide some context because it'll end up clearing some of the conversation that I have uh, coming up and especially later on in the program. Also, there are some poignant quotes that I feel now is a very good time to interject into the program. Now, these quotes come from a SlamWrestling.net article written by friend of the show, Greg Oliver. And these are various wrestlers talking about their experiences with Chief Don Eagle. And I think, again plays into conversations that I just had with Jamie and conversations that you're going to hear right away with the next guest on the program. Quote, I think the main thing with him, besides the fact that he was a good wrestler, a scientific wrestler, was that he gave the white people or the rest of Canada a better look at what the native people were like, explained Don Leo Jonathan. Nowadays, First Nations people stand different in the eyes of their fellow Canadians than they did 40 years ago. It was a slow process, but I think one that Don Eagle helped to speed up. I think that quote is very important because that really plays into the cultural awakening and cultural recognition that uh, Don Eagle was really bringing in, especially the Ohio area, but also to other parts of Canada and naturally the soon-to-be widespread television wrestling audience that was watching Don Eagle before their very eyes, not in living color, naturally, in black and white at that time, but interesting quotes nonetheless. Billy Two Rivers, who, if you had listened to the Season 1 episode, you would know intimately well at this point, uh, had this to say, quote, It's always been the curiosity of the red man in any kind of sport, and he personified that in his career. Basically, he was one of the front runners in the television era of wrestling. He was the pioneer in wrestling as an Indian person. Combined with his natural abilities, and the colorfulness of ourselves in costumes, and, I guess, the curiosity, he was a boom to wrestling, but he was also a role model for a lot of Indian people. And again, this further exemplifies the facts that we had talked about and are going to be brought up later on in the program as well. Something that was discussed during my conversation with Jamie Greer was the outlandish way that uh, Chief Don Eagle arrived to the wrestling venues. Namely, driving a long Cadillac with a 20-foot canoe on top. And Don Leo Jonathan had some tremendous memories of this and some thoughts as well. Quote, He had an outrigger built for that old thing. I've been out with him. I used to go out on the reserve, and we would go to the Lachine Rapids, spear sturgeon, shoot ducks and geese. He used it. He was quite a sportsman. Two things that he loved was Indian cornbread and roasted goose. And another conversation, or part of the conversation that we had uh, with Jamie, and something that gets brought up later on in the program as well, is how involved Chief Don Eagle was in communities, and how well he was involved in charities as well. And 
Billy Rivers had this to say about that. They used to visit hospitals and scout troops together, and he had purchased property in Vermont where he hoped to open a boys club or a boys camp. He was a wonderful person, a very giving person, a good person to know. And as well, another quote that Don Eagle, or regarding Don Eagle, and another quote regarding just the impact and recognition of Don Eagle from Billy to Rivers. Quote, He always made it a point that it was Don Eagle from the Mohawk community of Ganawake. A lot of times the wrestling announcers would say Don Eagle from Montreal or Don Eagle from Quebec, Canada. And if that was done, he'd correct it. I took that as an example to my travels. And that's something that I've come across during multiple matches of Don Eagle that I've watched, you know, even on YouTube, right? They're very quick to point out Kanawake, and if they say just Quebec, then the <laughs> the announcer usually gets some kind of tap on the shoulder to uh, to remind him of where Don Eagle was actually from. Now, another aspect that we had talked about was the essentially unfamiliarity of First Nations people with the general population, we'll say, in areas such as Ohio. And this is, again, where Don Eagle's colorful persona, we'll say, was a blessing and a curse because, yes, he was quite the attraction, but it could also come off as a distraction. Don Leo Jonathan kind of expanded on that a little bit. Quote, People never did understand him. You take white people looking at an Indian, they look at it completely differently than an Indian looking at an Indian. Since I was raised pretty much around Indians, and with Indians, I understood him a lot better than anybody else. He was just an Indian. He was through and through an Indian, even though he dealt with white people, and he learned to get along in that world. He wasn't completely accepted in that society, or he didn't want to be in it. And perhaps that's why people said that he had problems. Myself, I never saw him have more than a couple of beers. I know when we were at the Indian dances and stuff in Ohio, I never saw him drink. But that's not to mean, you know, how people are. Some people have serious problems that some people never know about. Some people function better drunk than they do sober. And this is a topic of conversation that comes up later in the program today. And I want to, I suppose, apologize a little bit for the language used. However, these are quotes from specific people set in a specific time, right? And, and this is a topic of conversation that comes up later on in the program as well today. A lot of the language used, you know, in terms of this program from back in the day, isn't obviously, you know, language we would use or me specifically that I would use in 2022. Unfortunately, we can't judge information and conversation the way that we do in 2022, uh, the way that we should have back then. So I just want to clear that up a little bit because there are there's terminology used that I'm not specifically comfortable with. However, it is part of the 
Dawn Eagle story. And they are interesting quotes that do shed some more light on the Dawn Eagle story. So I feel like they should be included. Now, there are other quotes regarding that article in SlamWrestling.net that we're going to get to later on in the program because it relates to something a little bit different. But in terms of overall cultural significance and big moments in professional wrestling history, there's probably one that unfortunately stands heads and shoulders above almost anything else that Don Eagle ended up accomplishing in the professional wrestling ring. And that is the Chicago short count screw job. To join me in discussing this matter is two-time guest to Grappling with Canada, Javier Oist. Javier Oist is an exceptional contributor to ProWrestlingStories.com as well as several other uh, websites that you can hear about later on in this program. But he's going to come on and talk about his article, his research into the Chicago short count screw job and some more undiscovered information regarding the life and career of Chief Don Eagle. But before then, I'm going to play some more classic wrestling audio. And on the other side, we get into the infamous Chicago short count. Mr. Eagle has lost his temper here for the moment. There's a drag on George. Going at him again. He's really smacking him with these things. Looky here, gorgeous George has got a leg lock. Watch him use these ropes. It was very much a pro-Don Eagle 
official, the ring announcer, tried to announce the fact that Gorgeous George had won the match from Don Eagle, but couldn't even make himself heard. He just gave it up as a bad job. Jeffries and George are still standing here, wondering perhaps whether or not to risk a trip out through the audience. Well, here we go. Let's see what happens. Uh oh, somebody yanking at his rope. Look at him kick at him. Javier Oist, welcome back to the program tonight. How are you doing, man? Great. Thanks for having me back, Andy. It's absolutely my pleasure. Um, we uh, we are been chatting a little bit off air, uh, trying to get our dates straight for our tremendous conversation that we're going to have uh, regarding tonight's topic of the of the evening, if you will, and that would be discussing the Chicago short count screw job. But before we get into all of that, for anybody who hasn't listened to you on the past episode of Grappling with Canada, uh, can you give everybody a little background about yourself? Sure, no problem. <clears throat> I mostly uh, write for pro wrestling stories. I've, I've been able to contribute to slam wrestling as well. I'm very proud. I'm also in G-Fan Magazine. For those uh, Godzilla fans, you know what that is. But uh, mo the bulk of my work is at is at uh, Pro Wrestling Stories, and I'm, I'm super excited to to be back on your show. I really enjoy listening to your stuff. Well, I obviously I enjoy having you. And uh, for anybody uh, Bertha who's Faye was the Bertha Faye was the other. That's show. correct. Yes, <laughs> and I can't there believe I usually I'm pretty on the spot of promoting my own well, um, <laughs> yeah. projects. But... Monster, monster, monster. Yes, Ripper. the Monster Ripper, which is like actually funny enough. Uh, that ended up being one of the most listened to episodes of season one. So you have uh, you have a little bit of a championship belt swagger to to carry throughout uh, the episode tonight. Great, that was the that was the IC belt. Maybe we can get the, the heavyweight title tonight. Yeah, uh, I I think I think we're going to be rocking it tonight. So this is going to be a lot of fun. But the re the reason we have you back on, notwithstanding your your tremendous personality and and your quick wit, getting me off my feet here. But uh, obviously, the articles that you're writing for uh, pro wrestling stories are, and I put you over big time last time. Like you just do such a fantastic job of presenting a fair and accurate article through and through each and every time. And when you were on previously, uh, you were a few articles away from a hundred. What I'm more impressed with and more fascinated by is your choice of articles. And obviously the one that we're going to be discussing in great detail tonight is regarding the Chicago Short Count Screwjob. So before we get into that, what tipped you off to this story and what what was it about it that fascinated you enough to write the article about it in the first place? I think I think I remember I was I was writing I had just finished writing a, uh, an article for the site and um, I was just looking for different ideas and I and I, I ran into this this one I uh, I just start putting in different keywords I'm, I try to search to see what's what's been written about what hasn't what can be what can we try to maybe there's there's mention of a certain incident in a story just a mention and that catches my eye where, where i'm thinking maybe this could be a whole, whole article and uh everyone talks about everyone is 
most people are familiar with the Montreal screw job and and what happened to Wendy Richter and the WWF. I know that's that's kind of years back, but these so-called uh, screw draw, screw jobs or, or these uh, <clears throat> double crosses in wrestling, you know, these there's been several documented cases, and this was one of them that really grabbed my attention, especially because Gorgeous George, the one and only. The, the, the toast of the coast, the uh, the human orchid is involved in it. <laughs> yes, so it, I thought that would that would be really uh, something that caught the reader's attention, and and I thought, hey, if gorgeous George is in it, it's got to be interesting. It's got to be an interesting read. <laughs> well, and interesting tale it is for sure. And uh, just to kind of echo your sentiments on that, you, you know, most wrestling fans, yeah, I would agree, you know. Montreal Screwjob, but you, you can talk for hours about that, you know, whatever happened. Even even the uh, the fabulous Moolah and Wendy Richter incident in, that was the late 80s, I believe, in the WWF. But uh, same thing, um, you, you could talk hours about what happened, what didn't happen, what what was the backstory, et cetera, et cetera. But, and, and then going through, you know, the annals of time, you you heard some of the the pioneers, right, like, incidents with Frank Gotch, for example. Yeah. But but this one, funny enough, in my research, when I was doing my storyboard for uh, season two, I had Don Eagle pegged because of my conversation in season one with Billy Two Rivers. And what I wanted to do was go down that, go down the, the not bloodline, but go down that alley of, of the Mohawk, uh, wrestling nation coming out of you know just outside of Montreal, Quebec. I had no idea. I didn't know anything about the screw job aspect of his story until I got into it, and obviously that's where I came across your article. And to me, it almost it it almost encapsulates his entire set of circumstances inside of wrestling in this one story. But obviously, we're going to get into it in, in great depth and detail here but it is it is interesting to note that this was or he was essentially the first canadian involved in in a double cross screw job and it was you know what would that have been uh 40 years before the the infamous one in montreal yeah yeah, and uh, and just for the the listeners, if they're not familiar with the Billy Two Rivers, Billy Two Rivers was the protege of of, of Don Eagle, right? Yes, yeah. Uh, I I from from what I recall in our conversation, it was uh, like the he's from the same reserve, uh, Konawake, outside of uh, Montreal. Uh, yeah. Billy Two Rivers was big into sports. He was a big time lacrosse player, actually. And uh, things were not going well in terms of his life on the reserve. And uh, that was the same time when um, Don Eagle was coming back to rehab his back. So at the yeah, same yeah. time was was uh, training Billy Rivers and two other wrestlers who didn't end up making it. But uh, yeah, Billy Rivers ended up being okay. his, his, uh, his protege. And they had He's, massive okay. runs as, as tag teams. Okay, yeah, yeah, he was he was one of a couple. He um, Don Eagle took under his wing, and he's he's at least a, the only one I know that that you that it can be said that that made it in in the sport. I'm not familiar with the other two, but uh, Billy Two Rivers is. And props for you to 
for getting him on the show. That's that's great for you to get him on the show. He's he's a he's a a wrestler at least on in, 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 in the United States, not too many people are familiar with them and, and, and that's a real shame and that's again one of the reasons why your show is, is, is just a real great listen, man, for you to be getting guests like that. For his story specifically, it was I was more, and I know we're getting off topic here, and I apologize for everybody listening at home, but for for his story, and this kind of ties in with, with Don Eagle as well, I was more fascinated by how big he was in Europe. Because you 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 know me sitting in Winnipeg, you, I wouldn't re, wouldn't think that you know a wrestler, just a Canadian in general, but never mind a, a Mohawk from just outside of Montreal would be as big of a star as he was overseas, right? And then you then you you learn about what was happening at the time, and 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 uh, you know with not racial stereotyping of whatever but there was there was a lot of um there was a lot of trying to learn about indigenous people from canada we'll say and i'll I'll kind of phrase it that way which also played into a, a, a large part of why he was so successful uh overseas coincidentally a lot of that ties into why uh don eagle was so successful at the time that he was so it is as as much as they're different stories, they still have very strong similarities. Ah, very interesting. Good, good. I, I knew about Billy too. Just just to close on Billy uh, Two Rivers, I knew about him first in uh, that wrestling documentary, uh, Wrestling Queen. That's where I knew about him. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, because I started. I was watching the matches, and the matches were a lot of those were amazing. I'm like, who are these guys? Because they a lot of them weren't the labeled. They didn't put the names underneath. Oh, them. that's right so too. They, yeah. They're, so they're just kind of you just they they just throw you in the middle of a match, and I'm like, who is this guy? I mean, I, I want to know who this guy is. I want to learn more about him. I want to see watch one of more of his matches. And one was uh, Billy Two Rivers, just 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 hitting each other with <laughs> slapping each other's chest, yeah. full force chops. <laughs> like, oh my god. Yeah, and and just laying everything in, as they say. Yeah, laying it in, man, laying it in. Um, it's like when you watch uh, WWE, the current product, you know, though they change the camera angle uh, a lot of times. Yeah, <laughs> and you kind of and you kind of miss the uh, the strike. When I saw Billy Two Rivers in that documentary, you you were seeing everything. Yeah, man, there, was no, there was no there was no edits. Cameras. Hard cam, the hard cam, and the uh, the the, uh, the the you know Handheld. the camera that's on the. Uh, yeah, the handheld. Yeah, yeah. Well, getting into the, uh, the, the 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 Chicago short count screw job. Yeah. So, uh, listeners of of tonight's program, will we teased it a little bit with my guest earlier on in the program, but I really wanted to get into uh, what happened with yourself because obviously the the article is tremendous, and we're not going to go word for word of the article. And again. This is a, it's a perfect companion piece for every, anybody listening to this right now. While you're listening to this, go head on over to ProWrestlingStories.com and, and search out the article to, to kind of follow along as we go here. But if you could just give everybody a bit of a backstory of what was happening in the Chicago area before this event took place. Well, in the, in the Chicago area, you had a Fred Kohler. Fred Kohler was... He was the uh, member of the NWA, like like several other promoters at the time. 
But even back then, you had uh, what you would call outlaw promoters, outlaw promotions, people who are not um, um, part of the NWA. This is what they would call them, outlaws. You know, that's what they would call them, even though, let, let's say you were you were the promoter for, for Illinois, you know, the Chicago area, and I start promoting shows, and I'm not part of the NWA. I'm considered an outlaw. Yes. So I'm, I'm, like, I'm like the troublemaker. So that was Fred Kohler. And the outlaw... Uh, promoter in of the area his name was leonard schwartz and he mostly ran shows in 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 the rainbow arena in chicago illinois that's what it was called and he was what i researched he was he was the uh, owner as well and uh he was doing he was doing very well his business was doing very well he would get people like jim londas jim londas was a was a huge deal back then this yes is, this is a this is a superstar that has been kind of lost in time, you know, but if you look up Jim Londas, he was one of the first true superstars of, of pro wrestling that that was when it was transition, transitioning more to an entertainment product. I mean, but this is the fifties; it was, you know, it was still uh, changing a little bit. And uh, and Schwartz, since he was not part of the NWA, a guy by the name of Jack Pfeffer would 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 get him talent. And Jack Pfeffer is a guy who was in and out with uh with the with the with the nwa sometimes he was cool with them sometimes he wasn't when he was when he wasn't he was he was exposing the business with the press <laughs> you know and uh and if he couldn't get buddy rogers he'd get a, a a guy with bleach blonde hair and call him like uh what was it bummy rogers or <laughs> yeah. His name. yeah that's right <laughs> but jack pfeffer jack pfeffer was pure carny promoter but he would have little people you know they would call them the midgets but the, you know little people wrestlers he would have women he would have any kind of wrestler he with like bizarre gimmicks if you weren't native american he'd make you native american if you weren't uh truly from the deep jungles of africa he would make you if you were dark skin and he would you know he would put an outfit on you a mask and okay there you go there's your african uh savage or whatever yes. he would have and he and he didn't shy away from his wrestlers to be uh, more of the entertainment aspect. He's he's quoted in in several places where he's like, "Look, this is this is the the kind of product I think the people like, and this is what's what sells." You know, this is uh, he he was insinuating that his product, this is what wrestling is, even though the others masquerade around like if it's a true sport, you know, pure sport. He's telling you, look, this is entertainment, and I'm just taking it up to the next level, you know. So what was going on is Fred Kohler was having trouble with this, uh, with this uh, outlaw promotion, and on top of that, uh, promoter Al Haft was also providing talent to Schwartz. Al Haft was a promoter of the NWA in the of the uh, Ohio area, Cleveland, Ohio area. And this is where Don Eagle comes in. Don Eagle was a big deal in the in the forties and the fifties when when TV came along. Don Eagle became a big star. And um, what what happens is back then the pro certain promoters had kind of like um, they had a certain kind of ownership over some of the talent. And with Don Eagle, there was something called a personal management contract where he would be lent out to different promoters. The problem was, 
he first started out wrestling let's say everyone wanted to be on on Kohler's uh shows because in Chicago he was part of the Dumont Dumont network which was a Dumont. massive television network du- yeah Dumont is is let's say uh it's what uh let's say what TBS the superstation became much later on yes. but Dumont was the competition of like CBS ABC you know they were like in 32 cities at the time and then big markets new york chicago you know they weren't they weren't like little towns so so if you were on Kohler's shows you were more apt at becoming a star and this is what don eagle became but what was going on it was al haft was kind of sharing don eagle with Kohler less and less and more with the uh, the rival outlaw promotion and this is what sets up the whole the whole encounter on uh, for May, what was it, 29, 19, May 23rd, 1950? I believe that's the date. I just want to double-check that. Uh, and that's that's the um, that's a so-called screwjob between both of them, the, the short count, the Chicago short count screwjob. Well, the 23rd uh, was when uh, Don Eagle became the AWA champion, which kind of predates... Oh, you're right. Which which predates this, but it figures in heavily into into what we're going to be discussing a little bit later on. But just something I wanted to circle Frank, back to. Frank Sexton, correct. That's yeah, right. Yeah. But be- yeah. before we get there, just something I wanted to circle back to is um, I, I really want to really put it out there that you know with with the advent of television. Uh, Don Eagle was like he was the guy in the Ohio area, and that those stations went all over the place. And, and again, this is a conversation that I touched on briefly uh, in in my earlier conversation with with my previous guest. But I don't think it can be understated just how much of a of a rocket ship essentially Don Eagle was on at that time. Coincidentally, you also have kind of some you know, backstage dealings, if you will, that you just alluded to with, you know, essentially his, uh, his personal manager kind of playing him against both sides of the same town. So all of these things are kind of bubbling to the surface. And then obviously we're, we're moving into the direction of what ended up happening in in Chicago, but I uh, sorry I didn't want to cut you off, but I wanted to kind of lay no, no, lay, no. lay a perfect. bit more of that and, uh, story a little bit better. And you just rem- you just helped me remember Jim Barnett was also involved. He was a uh, Kohler's business partner. That's right too. Jim Barnett Jim Barnett was a was a power broker in wrestling for for many many years. He was he was the main guy. You know he was down in Georgia. Uh, he was he established uh, Australia was a world championship wrestling in Australia. That's nothing right. The or, with, the uh, original WCW, world championship wrestling. But that was a but that was the name of the one in Australia. Jim Barnett. If you look into it, he was everywhere. Business dealings, and when the Tri WF started, uh, he was right there. The office had like five six people. He was one of the people as their one of their original um, employees. So he was he was back there he was backing up uh, a Kohler against all this happening, and he and he's one who he had his mitts in everything and he was everywhere is the other part of that and uh, yeah sorry sorry please continue. And I want, no, and I wanted to stress like you said back this is this is right when TV was was giving wrestling such a huge push, 
and this is also the time when I, I, people have to kind of place themselves in that era. Now we got the, you know, the internet, we got things at our fingertips, instant information is right there. Back then, your your news source was the newspaper, uh, the radio, and TV, and TV to a, to a certain degree. But what's funny about the newspaper is a lot of times the newspaper could be doctored could be doctored or influenced by promoters. So sometimes when you're researching these articles, the newspaper, you can't always take it like this is exactly what happened because I've come across the newspaper having two different results. That's one right, too. Says yeah. One thing, one paper. Then these are official <laughs> clippings. You know, this is not this is not something off the internet and on a chat. These are official clippings and one says someone certain person won this happened and the other one, the other one, this happened with the, my Mildred uh, Burke article. There was different reports on who had won and how they'd won <laughs> for the same match. <laughs> but uh, but this this is this is the, the beginning of the 1950s, and 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 George Wagner, who became he he changed himself to uh, Gorgeous George when they became basically a, a cultural icon of the time. It's, Gorgeous George is one of the wrestlers where it's like a Muhammad Ali. A lot of people never saw him box, but you know you've heard his name. Yes. Kind of like what happened like to Hulk Hogan later on. A lot of people who never saw wrestling know who Hulk Hogan was. It's like the just a cultural, influential icon of for wrestling. Uh, Gorgeous George inspired Muhammad Ali. He, he, he told Muhammad Ali how he could market himself better. Look, you're like he said, you're a great athlete. But you know, people want are gonna go want to watch you. That you you gotta you gotta get on their nerves. You gotta be telling them how pretty you are, how great you are. You just gotta get on their nerves. That's you know he he helped Muhammad Ali get to that to that other level. And you know, just jumping way ahead, but just this little uh, parentheses here. Later on, you had Adrian Street with the with a, with a similar gimmick. Yes. Much later, you had you had uh, Adrian Adonis. You know. But uh, gorgeous. Uh, oh, and even before that, of course, you had Buddy Rogers. Buddy Rogers had a a sort of effeminate, uh, tough guy, very brash uh, uh, image to him. And later, you had Ric Flair. All these guys, they gorgeous George played a part in in their image and in how they uh, conducted themselves. You know, and uh, and then basically. Uh, Don Eagle and, and Gorgeous George are gonna are gonna. Don Eagle is the AWA champion. One one important thing about this AWA championship uh, championship title is it it is not the one uh, of Burton Ganya and Pat O'Connor from the sixties. This is an older AWA based out of Boston. Yes, and and they claim they claim that this title was had even uh, ties to Hackenschmidt back in 1905 at Strangler in, in 1928. So this is the old AWA. No, none of us saw. <laughs> Let's yeah. put it that way. <laughs> it began in uh, 1930. Uh, and uh, the head of this NWA, the head of, the head of this uh, AWA, it's interesting, this his last name was Bowser. This, is, this was the promoter, Paul Bowser. He was part of the NWA, but he was kind of like on the fence he was a part of it 
but he was still promoting his champion, which was uh, Don Eagle, his AWA champion. And this is kind of like the setup with uh, with uh, Don Eagle and, and, and Gorgeous George, and all and 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 behind all this is promoter Fred Kohler. Uh, where Don e- he saw that Don Eagle was the key to all this. He's the he's the guy who's influencing uh, where the money's going, where people are are going to watch the shows. You know. Okay, that's a fascinating part that I, I really want to key into as well. Um, so hang on to that thought for one second. Something you brought up uh, in regards to Gorgeous George presentation-wise is something that's fascinating to think about now at this point because here you have, and obviously we're we're winding our way to the meeting of Don Eagle and Gorgeous George, but you have Gorgeous George who is flamboyant and flashy and effeminate and he's all about self-promotion and doing a masterful job on the flip side you have don eagle who has you know the the feather um oh, what's the term i'm looking for uh like the the war oh, feathers the head, the, yeah the, the head, war the feather headband. headbands right he's got the paint you know he he yeah, he pulls up to he pulls up to venues he's got this big you know, Cadillac that he's driving with the canoe strapped to the top. Like he, you're talking about two guys who are all about self-promotion two different ways, but are, are at, at this point in time, really like the, the two, two of the guys at the forefront of television. So it's, it's just interesting yeah. to see like, you know, who, who's being promoted by who, who's promoting who and how they're being promoted is interesting that you have two guys essentially, you know, diametrically, you know, presented, but are both just massive television stars at that point in time. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. Just imagine Don Eagle with that, with the, I think it's a, a war, um, a war bonnet, right? Yeah. Uh, that's it. Yes. Yeah. War bonnet. And, uh, well, and, and, and going back again to that, to that t- era, uh, a Native American character. This this was not the usual thing in in wrestling, and and wrestling was still pretty conservative. And then you all of a sudden you have Gorgeous George, who just put things <laughs> yeah. on it on, on its head. He just put the whole wrestling industry on its head. There was no one like this guy. He he did have in someone did influence him before. I forget the name, and I know there are there there historians listening to this are gonna say. This guy influenced uh, Gorgeous George. I, I forget the name, but for our purposes, other than this other person, there was no one like uh, Gorgeous George ever. That's this right. Was, yeah. People didn't know what people did not know what to make of him. And then you have uh, Don Eagle, who was this was a very exotic, different looking uh, wrestling character, and 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 still today. So today, uh, someone with a headdress, you know, that war bonnet, and and you know that 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 that, that huge car, it's gonna it's gonna turn heads, you know. And he was very proud of his heritage, and he was he was legitimately Native American heritage. He wasn't uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't Joe Scarpa, right? It wasn't uh, yeah. uh, Chief J Strongbow. You he know, wasn't with, an with Italian all, dressed up or whatever. No, and with all due respect to Chief J. Strongbow, who had legions of fans and was, and was super over, uh, Don Eagle was the real deal. And super talented in the ring, athletic, 
fast. This guy, this guy was a, this guy was a top, he was a, he used to box. You know, this guy was a top athlete, you know, and Gorgeous George with all his, his looks of, of his prissiness and his manager and he's throwing the perfume around and his little, his little golden bobby pins. Gorgeous George was a legit wrestler. He had an amateur wrestling background. He could, he could hold him, he, he can hold himself real well in the ring. He wasn't just uh, someone just prancing around. So this is a great, really, really good setup for the fans. So I can I can only imagine the atmosphere in the building heading into this, and and you, this is a date that the date that we are going with is May twenty sixth, nineteen fifty, at the International Amphitheater in Chicago. There are other dates floating in the ether, but and this is something that we had talked about off air. And I think we've come to the consensus that there's other dates because of the airing dates of the program, which obviously would be different than uh, the actual uh, day of the fight. Yeah. And, 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 and we've, uh, we've confirmed it in, 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 in several very reputable books. So I'm, I'm going with May 26, 1950. <laughs> and what's interesting uh, about... Sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. What's interesting, and a lot of people, you know, who will search this out on YouTube, uh, which I highly suggest, or maybe reading the article, glossing over it, is they don't. They don't. They're like, oh, it's a two out of three fall match. Why was it that? So can can you explain why this was a two out of three, two out of three falls match? It it it, traditionally. For the championship, two out of three falls was was the usual stipulation when it, when it had, when it was going to be a championship. And most most, but even though most uh, most matches back then were two out of three falls, is that is that what your research? Uh, That's showed? what it is. Yeah, but it, it I find it interesting that it's kind of it's one of those things that is lost to you know m- most fans nowadays because you know we've had. 40 years of, of kind of a standardized way of, of running shows. But before that, yeah. especially in the NWA, every championship match was a two out of three fall, yeah. unless there was some so kind of different... That was the norm. That's right. Yeah, that was the norm in the NWA, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and that's important because, uh, remember, Don Eagle is the claimant of the AWA championship, not the Vergani one, but the older AWA so this was, but before the match, um, that's one of the things that we're going to talk about where it's not, that title is kind of like not really mentioned in the match as far as the, um, the, um, the commentator. Yes. Which is interesting. And, uh, and no belt. And I'm jumping ahead of myself. I'm sorry. And no belt is, uh, presented at the end to, to either one of these competitors, so I won't give away the winner. <laughs> but you don't see it at the beginning. You don't see it at the beginning. You don't see it at the end. But coming into the match, um, Don Eagle, Chief Don Eagle, was the uh, AWA champ- champion. And another thing I think we should just, you know, as, as we kind of set the stage for what happens is the program that was aired on television was interestingly edited we'll say so what what you'll see in video form there are 
moments that are missing. There are time jumps, and like you just said, uh, there are aspects of the match that are left out on the television um, production side of it, which which does play further into the into the overall story of what ends up happening here. Yeah, and and, and I would say either inconveniently or conveniently some major editing was done with the video of, of, of the match the first fall we'll get into that it's fine but then after the first fall though that's when things kind of get a little strange okay it was a little challenging writing an article because you're thinking maybe i should seek out a better copy or else i'm going to be writing a, a bs article <laughs> yeah <laughs> but there's nothing there's nothing as far as i know there's nothing out nothing else out there you know well so so let's get into this so for the first fall uh i believe it it was uh don eagle takes the first fall with with the handstand indian leg lock uh and he makes george tap for the first fall correct yes it's uh I mean, it's technically what, what it's a technically the uh, Indian leg lock, but he does it with his hands instead of with his leg. So I thought I had never seen that before. So that was super interesting to me when I saw that. He does a he kind of ties George's legs into his into Donnie. Don Eagle ties his arms into George's legs and does then does a hand headstand and then a, goes into a bridge. And, and gorgeous George uh, submits, that which is first fall. yeah, and and that's notable. Yeah, as... I mean, that's the best I can describe it. People are gonna have to go and watch the the black and white the uh, the the match. It's 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 there. It's really interesting. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting aspect to the match itself because normally you don't see a champion contender tap in the first fall, right? We've seen we've seen champions lose the belt. Uh, via submission, a notable one would be when Kaniski lost it to um, uh, Dory Funk Jr. would be a notable one, but not it, this isn't something that you would normally see, which is further, you, you know, we're talking about weird things that happen in the match. This gets further exasperated by what happens with the second fall, which is, you know, based on what we have for video evidence is almost conjecture. The second, the second fall is, um, it gets a little strange because there's a part where Don Eagle is like, yeah, uh, he, I believe he's, he's thrown out of the ring, correct? And yes, like he gets thrown out of the ring. Yeah, and he and runs. Like, and, he... and the camera, camera gets lost, and you know it's black and white footage. It's kind of chaotic, and then you, then all of a sudden you see uh, uh, gorgeous George in the corner. And they're kind of like uh, preparing him for, basically for the second fall, you know. Once, 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 uh, Don Eagle gets back inside. That's a there's some, there's some weird editing there, that's for sure. And, and, and uh, he was counted out. He was counted out. That's what happens. So then once he he's counted out, then they're one fall apiece, which is very strange. And, yes. Uh, the commentator mentions that that Don Eagle hit his head on the on the outside or, or something, and uh, but uh, then it's one one fall apiece. Gorgeous George submits in the first one, then uh, Don Eagle is counted out on the second, and that and then they're going into the third fall. Now, what's what's also interesting about 
the the countout for the second fall is that War Eagle is there at the same time now, and 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 again we kind of lose that aspect in the in the editing of the match where it's as as people listening uh, would know at this point, uh, Don Eagle had his father as his second for for the majority of his definitely of his early career for sure, but. It's just interesting that he's not there, and then he's like, it's it's like a like a stand-in almost. It's very strange. Yeah, he's there, but you but you see him at the beginning of the match, right? Basically, you only see him outside of the right behind the ring post on the on the apron, right? Yes. You see him at the beginning. You, you see him at the beginning of each fall, and that's all you you see of him. But again, the uh, the footage is is it's really old footage. We need someone to go in and and, and make this into a. a some kind of colorization and maybe 4k or, yeah. or something. Maybe we can see but, um, but it's clear that there, that there's been some editing and very, very strange way to, to lose a second fall. And, uh, and in the third fall, uh, gorgeous George pins. Well, just a preface to this throughout the whole match, the referee does a pretty steady count. You can see him going one, to you know just a steady count and and i'm sure if you're working in the ring that, that that's really appreciated because you don't have a referee who's counting too fast or too slow but for the third and and, and decisive fall uh gorgeous george kind of gets tangled up in a in a, some kind of leg lock with uh, don eagle gorgeous george is over don eagle and he's bouncing off the ropes bounces off the ropes a couple of times trying to pin don eagle and at some point, the the referee decides that Don Eagle's shoulders were indeed uh, down on the on the mat for three seconds. And if you go back and watch it, uh, it's close, but I would say that's was kind of screwy, uh, pun intended. <laughs> screwy count <laughs> by the referee. <laughs> Earl, his name is Earl Mullahan. Um So he was very questionable counting for the third and final fall and uh, Don Eagle just goes irate and I, you're looking at this and I'm and I'm you know part of the part of the big the artistry in pro wrestling is for them to convince you that that uh, I don't like using that word real or fake you know but part of the artistry is for them to for you to be watching wrestling and, and you're like oh that's not a work oh he's really angry there and Don Eagle looks legitimately angry at the referee and if it wasn't for his father, who knows what he if maybe he would have done one of those leg locks on uh, on the referee. He was he ripped his shirt off. He tried to punch him a couple times. He yeah, and, and the, 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 ring. the only the thing that stopped him was his dad. His dad, yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 all through and through all this, I've seen the video several times, and gorgeous George is just kind of, you know, in the background. He's not getting involved. They put his robe on. They try to raise his hand, his arm, and he just kind of pulls away. So you're not, it's not, you're not certain whether Gorgeous George was in on this or not. So you, but, but Gorgeous George certainly has a hard time getting out of the ring. You know, they they pull on his robe. He's, he kicks a couple of fans, and he's getting mauled while he's trying to, you know, go back to the dressing room. Well, and the fans are irate. They're oh yeah, they're like, throwing yeah, they're throwing stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like we've seen, you know, um, we'll equate this to something more modern, right? When when Hogan turned heel, for example, and the ring gets littered with garbage. Well, 
it's it's not thirty thousand people, but the, you got you know six thousand fans or whatever, or I I think the number was like fifty two hundred or whatever. But anyways, but they just trashed the building. Like they were they were they were not happy. Well, thing is, think about it. Gorgeous George had tremendous heat, whether he won or lost. And that's the other part of it too. And, yes. And and, and I mean, Gorgeous George would just walk in the arena. And people were like booing him, cussing him, and people just—they were kind of—they were like fascinated by him, but they—they they hated him at the same time. Like, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? And to beat Don Eagle like that and in such a strange way, the people were not liking it. There was like a sense of anger and confusion of, of what had what had gone on, and and you can see that they're trying to maul Gorgeous George. Uh, while he's trying to leave, and you can you can also observe that uh, Gorgeous George is kind of he puts his robe on, and he's trying to break. He's bracing himself because he knows he knows there's going to be trouble. Yes, and he hasn't. And this is not the first time he can sense that the people are <laughs> they just want to you know they want blood. Yeah, you know, but, but this time, but this time he must have thought. I think whether he was in it or not, he knew he was in trouble. <laughs> Now, what else is interesting is on the audio component of the video, and you have to remind me who who is doing the commentating. But he starts Rusty. going on. Okay, Russ. Okay, yes, that's correct. And he <laughs> and he's going on that it was, you know, one of the biggest upsets in in wrestling. And um, I believe he was oh, saying he, that he, he's super. He's, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you. He's super exaggerated. I, I remember I put this in the article. He's super exaggerated by saying uh, that that Don Eagle had him lost like in about 135 to 140. Yeah, and, uh, and he had won. If 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 he's talking about the title, which they don't mention, but just just putting the title in there, he had won it like three days before. So that was he was super super kayfabing. <laughs> the Don Eagle's record there, you know, just putting more gasoline to the fire, just throwing more, uh, making it flam- more flammable. But Russ Davis, if people, uh, if the listeners, if, if people watch the really o- older stuff from like Chicago, uh, the stuff they would, they would uh, show like in the movie theaters. And now, you know, you can get, get it on YouTube for free, but he's the commentator. He kind of talks like, uh, he really puts a lot of personality in it and is commenting. And, it, and it's just him. It's not him and someone else. So yes. he makes these little voices. If, if it's women's wrestling, he makes little, he goes, oh, the little little Miss Pretty didn't like that punch. <laughs> he, he kinda, he, and he, if you go back and watch, listen to his matches, he's, he's real funny. He's real fun to, to listen to. But uh, but he was he was definitely selling it as one of the biggest upsets in, 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 in wrestling wrestling history in, in a long time i believe he said yeah and it was it was yeah uh, the over exaggeration was odd and i i'm not sure oh boy and it, obviously we're we're just totally talking out of turn or out loud or whatever but i don't know if it if it was him or if he was told to say a line like that or, or how in the world <laughs> that you would get 140 straight matches or it just it just it adds to the bizarre yeah you know everything that happened in 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 the whole event that's why i that's why i love these these stories and 
And if, if someone, I mean, he's, he says that in, in, when he's narrating the match, you know, obviously in the edited version, um, and I, and I put that in the article because I'm like, well, this is his quote. <laughs> and he said this, let the reader decide <laughs> Let the reader. I mean, if, 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 you know, if that's, if that's obviously kayfabe, that's fine. But this is what makes these, these uh, stories so fun. And back then there was something still very magical about the whole, the whole wrestling product, you know? So in the immediate aftermath of what happened, obviously the, we had, alliterated that the fans just went insane uh there was a bunch of arrests i believe don eagle got arrested as well right and he was he was he was charged and released in the same day but yeah, it's totally conduct uh, it was about it was almost three hundred dollars in, in in today's money yes what he was um and close close to six six thousand fans it was it was closer to uh five thousand two hundred you know when they talk about how many people attended a card, they always estimate estimate upward, right? But it's about five thousand two hundred fans uh, that attended this this show to watch that. And uh, but remember, one thing one thing we left out the, the, the what the uh, story is behind this. Remember, this is again Don Eagle. Why why this happened? If, uh, Fred Kohler was behind this, right? And you want you want to get into that right now? Yes, let's get into that because I yeah, I I think that that's that's a good way to uh, to really dig into what happened afterwards because um, you know we had we had discussed earlier how Don Eagle was on this rocket ship trajectory essentially, and then this happened, and that was kind of. It killed his. It killed him essentially, and there there are reasons for it. Very specific reasons why that happened, and very specific people who were behind it. So yeah, let's get into that one. Yeah, well, this this was later confirmed by him, but he wanted to diminish the the value of of Chief Don Eagle. He's like, if if I'm not getting him. I'll, I'll be damned if, if he's going to be a value to my uh, to my competitors. And remember, and on top of all that, Fred Kohler was a legitimate uh, member of the NWA, and yet he's not doesn't seem like he's getting too much help from the organization to yes. to fight fight off these guys. If if you if you research later examples of outlaw promotions, you can see direct action of the NWA to help out. The, the endangered promotion like like what happened in Georgia in the in the early 70s with uh, with Angunkel which is which is another interesting story not not Canadian but a very interesting story of Angunkel and the uh, and her outlaw promotion in the early 70s where the NWA did help eliminate her promotion but in this case what I researched um, the NWA was a little slow to react and Fred Kohler decided to take things in his own manner, in, in, in his own hands, and all points to it. All points to uh, the Mullahan, the, the Earl Mullahan, the, uh, the the referee was involved because that's it was just a strange count. But it's unconfirmed whether Gorge George was involved, and it's doubtful uh, Chief Don Eagle was, I, in, in my opinion. I I can't see him being a part of it because. It, 
I mean, it would have to be something super twisted and convoluted where where he would benefit from something like that. I mean, he did get even more press, but it was. I don't see it. I don't see why he would would have been involved in this. Because <laughs> there, there, and there's a couple of aspects to further exemplify that part of it, right? Because it killed his trajectory. Uh, it killed the AWA title because that was. That although it had the the you know legacy that we had discussed earlier, it's after this happened, it was devalued. So you, you devalued the wrestler, you devalued the title. Now you have the NWA's plans, uh, which had included, I believe, um, a match between Thez and. Um, was it is it Thez and Eagle or was it Thez and Gorgeous George? But it derailed the NWA's plans. Like this, this one thing just just tips so many, just set so many things off wrongly in in that era of wrestling. Yeah, this was a this was a time when when the NWA was was kind of fed up with all these different uh, titles, people claiming world championship. So. Uh, the AWA and Bowser, he was he was a defender of that. But when this happened, he finally uh, fell in line. He and he and he joined joined the NWA 100. percent Yes. And that that AWA title was was uh, discontinued. It, it, it no longer it ceased to exist after that. And then Luthez was the first uh, undisputed heavyweight champion. That's what they wanted an undisputed heavyweight champion after, uh, remember it was, it was Orville, Orville, uh, Brown who got into a, a car accident. Yes. And he was good. He was going to be the first one, but Luthez had to, had to be at, and this is, again, this is the early 1950s and the NWA was established in 48. So it was, it was like a, it was an infant in its infancy, but that's what they wanted. They wanted one title. And this was, this was the beginning of that. And uh, eventually, even surprisingly, after this, even after this happened, uh, they they claim they made Chicago what they call an open city, where they allowed Schwartz to continue promoting, but with uh, ABC TV. But this is when Kohler really, really decided to dig in he, he he quit for a while and he said look this can't this can't this isn't possible i've been i've been faithful to to the organization you guys got to help me out so uh, what happened was later on they gave him priority when when the champions were in town where where they would still allow it but uh Kohler would get priority when when you would get the the, the champs in the area well, and then and then obviously he had the the unified world champion at that time. So you're you're just giving him all the all this ammunition to really stake his claim as as you know the show in Chicago. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I believe he had to speak with Sam Munchnik. Sam Munchnik is a, is, a, is a name a lot of people will recognize. That was around fifty three. And um, once with the unified title, the NWA is 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 more or less what we what we understand what the territories were until until uh, the early to mid '80s when things started falling apart. 
but they had a, a very, very successful system for a little over 40 years. So there's there's forty years. There's one more piece to the Fred Kohler story that I, I that's part of your article and I want to get into. He was interviewed by the Justice Department over yep. this. Yeah. Okay, you got you. Let's get into this one now. <laughs> this, remember, this is this is when people, you know, this is when wrestling is, uh, I guess, considered, you know, legit sport, and then uh, you know, so the Justice Department gets involved. And Kohler admits to them that this was first of all he starts he tells them tells them that you know War Eagle and, and Chief Don Eagle you know they're difficult to work with and this and that and they wanted special privileges and they were getting expensive but uh, he did confirm that the reason behind all this was to uh, devalue Don Eagle and give him give him when he would t- return to. Schwartz, which was his is the outlaw rival, he would Don Eagle's value would 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 be, you know, down, you know, way below for below it was before, and uh, it was very vindictive of of, of Fred Kohler to do this and the, with Don Eagle, which was pretty much the star of the time, along with uh, Gorgeous George, and uh, he even told um he even claims that. I remember in the article it says he even claims that he he uh, invited the Illinois Athletic Commission to look at the film and, and time the seconds and you know the three seconds Don Eagle's shoulders were on the mat it, it was all confirmed and it was all clean and I mean this is incredible that it's that it's all documented by <laughs> by uh, articles and, uh, and and like you said the Justice Department involved in in in, in in an investigation over a pro wrestling match. It's interesting too. And another aspect that you had written in your article was, and this kind of circles back to our Al Haft uh, conversation earlier. Uh, so he was essentially saying that uh, Al Haft was begging him to push Don Eagle on his shows. But then once he was pushed and became a star, uh, that half tied him up, so it made it harder for yeah. uh, Eagle to work in, in his territory. And then, obviously, we have the the splitting between uh, Kohler and the Outlaws, which which goes into that. But it's he kind of uh, he 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 tries to babyface himself in, in the whole uh, <laughs> in the, in the whole <laughs> That's deposition. A to, That's a real good way, but he tries to babyface himself, uh, and uh, but there's also. I've also, according to my research, it seems like he asked Gorgeous George, look, if you can pin him, pin him. And I haven't seen, I have never seen anything where Gorgeous George uh, talks about this incident, either um, uh, either in his book or in other articles. The book, I, I read the book a while ago, so I'd have to confirm that. But I don't think he I, ever I, said anything about it, ever. I, I, I found nothing on that. I found nothing on that. I wish, I wish... Maybe during uh, conversations at the bar, maybe he told someone, but uh, nothing official, nothing, nothing to the press or anything. If anyone knows or anyone has a story, <laughs> I would love to hear it. Please email me yes. at sixsidepod at gmail dot com. I want to hear it. Yes, if there's anything written on Gorgeous George talking about this incident, even if it's a a sentence or two, I would love to see that. If it's if it's in microfiche somewhere in some library. <laughs> 
you know, in, 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 in Chicago or something, something, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah like, but, the, it's, it's just, and, it's... And, and, and a little bit after, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say, it's just, it's wild how this one event just absolutely changed the landscape, certainly in the Midwest, and and really set the stage for the NWA to become what they ended up becoming, which is is it's so weird how one just one thing like this just sets off so many different uh, uh, aspects of pro wrestling history. It's 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 so wild. Yeah, and and, it, and it's and it's uh, it was fascinating to me to see where sometimes we we look at wrestling back in the day and I'd say, I'm talking about back in the day when I want to talk about black and white footage and, you know, these super classic matches, we, we see them through, uh, through some kind of filter where things were so much purer and things were so, uh, more, more like sport and not like the circus we see now. Wrestling hasn't changed that much in decades. Let's not, wrestling has stayed yes this is this is like uh this is like mirroring the montreal this is like um you know the uh wendy richter there are differences there are differences because there's a promoter back behind all this and there was like a lot of things happening behind our curtain um and it wasn't as far as we know it wasn't gorgeous george like you know hooking hooking uh don eagle and, and going into business for himself because remember gorgeous george he didn't need a title this is a kind of you know when you go when 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 fans talk about wrestlers he should have been world champion or he should have had a, a run with the title gorgeous george never needed any of that's that right yeah over. once he became gorgeous george of course he didn't need a, any he was <laughs> just being himself he and he was the perfect uh opponent for champions you know he this whole this whole thing pretty much ended when a gorgeous george lost to luthez in, in uh straight falls putting an end to any kind of controversy who was the uh the awa champion and then it's this was in uh yeah and and then it's wild that you know the you know all all the big players of this uh event essentially in 10 years were all gone Right, it's it's, and that's that's one of the saddest parts. <clears throat> Sorry, it's one of the saddest parts about this whole thing is, you know, for all the hoopla and, and all the steam that came out of this, and and all the the fractures that ended up happening, all the three players, you know, Don Eagle, Fred Kohler, and Gorgeous George, you know, didn't make it past, you know, the, the mid sixties. No, and uh, unfortunately, Gorgeous George, he for years he was struggling with, uh, you know, alcoholism, and and it's tragic because Gorgeous George was one of the, if not the top paid uh, athlete, uh, sports athlete, uh, entertainment entertainer of his time of his era. And uh, when you compare him to, to baseball players of the time, I believe, like, you know, let's say like Joe DiMaggio and, 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 uh, and uh, what's his name, uh, Milton Burrow. You know, George, Gorgeous George always claimed that he sold more television sets than uh, Milton Burrow, which was, which is a top entertainer of the time. And, and, and Gorgeous George didn't live past 48. Um, 
what's his name, Don Eagle, didn't live past 40. You know, just, just, just horrible. You know, and, and uh, I'm not sure if he went in, went with Billy Two Rivers. He, I don't know if he discussed uh, uh, Don Eagle. Did you discuss anything about that with him when you talked to Billy Two Rivers? Uh, I had a about, bit of a, about about uh-huh. about the end. About the de- about the death of uh, Don Eagle. About the the. But supposedly he committed suicide, which is super sad. But but then there are people who. Well, I've read that Billy Two Rivers assures that it was it was a, uh, you know, a murder. Unfortunately. Yes, it, it's a it's that? it's an it's something that we are going to. Uh, get into later on in in this ah. program tonight um in terms of what billy two rivers had said to me most of what he said to me made air on on the interview that i had done with him and and uh there were things that were uh not put on air if you will so i think Got that it. i think Got that's uh the yeah, most tactful really delicate, yeah. really, really <laughs> the tactful way that super... i can say it yeah, it's just super, super horrible things to talk about, and, and the way these these uh, these these superstars of wrestling just live the life, and uh, they're just gone, and and uh, and I forgot I forgot to to just begin tonight's conversation. I really wanted to just take you know a little a couple seconds to, to to say that i'm super super down because of uh, scott hall yes uh passing away i i i wanted i forgot mentioning that because but i forgot to mention it before the show but i've been thinking about that for these days all you know these days and uh that's super sad uh how, how things happen and, and my my heart goes out to his family uh, his so many fans loved him, and he was he was super super entertaining to watch. But but uh, went went through a lot of de- went through hell and back, fought demons for years, and made a comeback and had th- had turned things around. And um and um and now he's gone. Super sad. So wrestling uh, is just a tra- is just tragic that way, and uh, we can't get enough of it, and we can't stop talking about it. It seems. <laughs> yeah. No matter that. No matter the era, right? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. Like right in in front of me is uh, I have uh, a couple of Scott Hall autographed uh, oh, nice. uh, memorabilia items in, in my little office here. Yeah, that one that one hurt hurt me personally. I never. Yeah. Sorry, I never got to meet him personally. I you know I, I was always a big fan and. Uh, Boy, that was uh, and, it was a hard day. Yeah, yeah, those things. I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, you understand when people pass away, you know, old age or Scott Hall wasn't with 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 everything that happened. I mean, he was he wasn't old, you know. He was in his in his sixties, you know. But uh, just tragic. And, and just a just a side note of all this, I hadn't, I had. Just to show you how wrestling can can bring people together, uh, things like wrestling. I hadn't talked to one of my brothers in months. We had kind of a falling out, and the thing that the com- the uh, topic that opened up the conversation between us, and now we're 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 good again. You know, you know, we uh, we're talking again. Is Scott Hall? 
he brought up the topic i was i and i answered and 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 now my brother and i have have made up and and and, and everything's okay but just so you can see how wrestling can really be a positive influence with people and and, and it brought me and my brother together again you know so just a side note on 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 all this don eagle and gorgeous georgia debacle the, the scott hall passing was very 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 sad for for so many people i guess it, it also kind of frames our conversation in a, a bit more context right is is uh you know th- obviously this this event and the in these people are, are kind of an era before us but we can still go back and understand the emotion and the connection that they had with their fans and then obviously it 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 translates to us losing someone like Scott Hall, right? It's wrestling is one of those things that it's it's very generational and it, it's very it's it's a bonding experience. I find for a lot of it, and you know, say what you will about the the current product. I, I, I'm you know not getting into that whole thing, but uh, I really hope that uh, as you know time progresses and as uh you know we start losing some people that people take that time to uh you know really realize what they what they were privileged to see and uh and experience throughout their wrestling fandom i guess is is kind of what i'm trying to get at yep i i i agree 100 percent. you know what, what what these guys what these guys and you know we what these men and women go through in the ring these bumps and the traveling and, and the, uh, the, uh, how much is, is expected of their bodies and, and just the toll it takes is, is, uh, pretty much unbelievable. It's, it's not like, it's not like football. It's not like basketball. It's, it's, these are like, uh, kind of like a combination of rock stars and, and, and athletes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think and, that's and a we'll never, we'll never, we'll never, we'll never understand it, you know, so much respect to, to to Scott Hall and much respect to everyone who who makes a career in in, in, in wrestling and uh, and uh, you know when Gorgeous George and Don Eagle passed, Gorgeous George was hated by so many people in the wrestling context. But I'm sure when he passed, people realized, man, that he that he was unforgettable, yes. unforgettable character. <laughs> Well, and we're still talking about him today, right? And as as we as as we should, these 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 people, these these wrestlers, these talents should never ever be forgotten, never, never. And uh, and that's what your shows that's what your shows for. That's what uh, sites like Pro Wrestling Stories tries to do. We, of course, it's for you know we try to entertain, but we 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 also want to remember remember these wrestlers, all the good they did, all the bad they did, all the. <laughs> You know all these stories. You know, it just paints them as a, as a whole. They're all human. You know, we we see them as larger than life. We see them as superheroes. We see them, but these are all human beings with emotions. They feel pain. They feel sad. They feel happy. You know, they they get depressed. They get excited. Uh, they're just human beings on on a very large stage that have provided entertainment for us for years and years and uh and uh my heart goes out to all of them and their families when when they pass when they pass away yeah i can't uh i can't say it any better than that 
Uh, I think I think you you perfectly encapsulated uh, uh, the sentiment at the at the end of the of the segment here tonight. But uh, on on a <laughs> on a lighter note, perhaps if we could. On a lighter note, just remember these these guys are going to be remembered forever. They're going to be remembered. You know, they're not going to be forgotten. Yes. I think it's. I think if you if if you pass away and you're forgotten, uh, that kind of sucks. If if you're remembered, you live forever. You know, the bad guy is going to live forever. People yep. will remember that guy. You know. But go ahead. I, I interrupted you. <laughs> no, that's okay. Please. <laughs> hey, man, you can interrupt me anytime that you anytime that you want. But uh, I was going to ask. Uh, uh, what yeah. can we look forward uh, from yourself on the aforementioned Pro Wrestling Stories uh, site, and what what else do you have going on coming up lately? Yeah, sure. There's a uh, there's a couple articles coming up. Uh, you'll have one. You'll have one on this is this is my work. There's always articles from other writers, but as for me, you're gonna get uh, Gory Guerrero. You're gonna get one on Matt Morgan. Oh wow! You'll be getting you'll be getting one on yeah. Look at me. I'm I'm writing about uh, new newer newer yeah. wrestlers, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was it? Uh, oh, Steve Kern. Steve oh Kern, yeah. Okay. Who, cool. Uh, he was the uh, uh, what was it the the fabulous ones, right? The fabulous yeah. ones, and uh, a lot of people remember him as Skinner, which was an interesting character, but mostly Steve Kern, the old school Steve Kern in, in Florida. And uh, there's a, of course, there's going to be an article about outlandish arrests you might not have heard about, outlandish wrestler arrests you might not be familiar with. You know that that's going to be in there. We always try to get stuff like that. And a um, couple more, a couple more are have been submitted, not published yet, but uh, they'll they'll be they'll be getting out shortly. Oh, there's there's a really really fun interview of uh, Savio Vega. Oh, awesome! That I, uh, well, I, I didn't conduct an interview, but I was able to transcribe it. Yeah, and uh, and I added different things, so it's so it's an, it's an article out of the uh, interview pro wrestling stories. Uh, and JP Zarka, who is the owner of the site, he he conducted an interview, but I, I asked him, hey, uh, I would love to make this interview into an article, and uh, and and that'll be coming out. I, I believe that might be the next one coming out in the next couple of weeks but a lot of interesting stuff coming out you know in terms of my work and uh go to prowrestlingstories.com and there's a lot of cool articles there that that i think your readers are going to enjoy well listen javier this was uh this was tremendous tonight i i I can't thank you enough for uh uh, coming on the program tonight talking about this amazing event that happened in uh in wrestling history and uh and dealing with me and the time change if you will that's uh <laughs> that's a funny story that we're gonna we're gonna I, leave in the off air <laughs> yeah i know I, i'm i know what time i have and i know what time you have but i'm not sure what time uh what time zone i'm in let's put it that way we're still, we're still trying to figure it out oh uh, we'll, just, we, was, we'll get just, it straight now one of these just, days i was just hanging out and they're like Hey, uh, the link's there whenever you want to be ready. I'm like, you're 45 minutes early, but yeah, we can do it if you want, man. Uh, and you're like, no, it's, <laughs> isn't it time right now? <laughs> <laughs> so you thought I was 15 minutes late. I thought I was 45 minutes uh, early, and uh, but we got it done. 
Well, and I'm very thankful for it, man. This this was an absolute treat for me. Thank you so much for coming back on the program. Well, thank you for inviting me, man. If, if I have the time and, uh, and, and I can do it, I'll, I'll do it again, man. I appreciate it. Now, before we proceed further with the Don Eagle story, there is another controversial portion of his life that we need to discuss and tackle on the program tonight. And that is regarding his passing. Now, there is some conjecture out there, and there are quite a few different opinions about what ended up happening, uh, some of which you were going to hear later on in the discussion with my, or conversation, I should say, with my upcoming guest. However, I don't want to involve my personal opinions onto uh, what happened with the situation. So what I'm going to do is present uh, the facts as we know it. I'm going to provide some context from some of the people who know him best in professional wrestling. There are also a couple of stories that I kind of want to highlight and debunk because they're out there and they're out there for a couple of specific reasons, in my opinion. So I feel like this is as good a time as any to discuss these, and then we can uh, kind of liven the spirits a little bit uh, with my uh, upcoming conversation, if you will. Chief Don Eagle ended up passing away on March 17th, 1966. Now, there are two different accounts of what happened, factually speaking. One is that he had committed suicide with via a self-inflicted gunshot wound. One is that it was a murder. Uh, this is because there were several other bullet holes found in the surrounding area. In any case, Don Eagle ended up dying on March 17, 1966. Conjecturally speaking, uh, many people had said that it had something to do uh, with the number of construction project setbacks, uh, namely a Logan County Indian village, an expansion program in the Zane Shawnee Caverns, and a 12 million uh, First Nations center during or near Montreal. Now, naturally, these are all aspects kind of based in conjecture. In reality, nobody knows specifically what happened at the end of Don Eagle's life. However, there are some opinions stated by his friends, which I wanted to get in here because I think that it kind of illustrates the high regard that he was held in some people's uh, minds. So, once again, we're jumping back into the SlamWrestling.net article. I have a couple of quotes here. Uh, this one comes from Don Leo Jonathan. Quote, A lot of times when you know a person, there's just certain things that you figure they would never do. I heard that he had terminated his own life. I find that hard to believe. And I have a quote here as well from Billy to Rivers, who has been very outspoken in the years since about... Uh, the fact that it was a suicide. So in this article, 
Quote, I went out and had a couple of beers with him. We talked and sort of said how things were. He said that he was finding it difficult being retired and that his back was giving him a lot of troubles. I personally don't believe that it was suicide. I have my own conclusions that I draw. Let me tell you safely that it was not enemies. Enemies. It was not suicide. Now, I'm not going to get into uh, who done it. I don't think that that's the proper way to discuss this subject. And I, I, again, I don't want to come off as being sensationalist in the aspects of the incident. However, there are a couple of things that have gone on in years past that I want to discuss and debunk. One of which is wrestling media's portrayal of certain events, especially dark events in professional wrestling history. Now, modern wrestling fans will know full well the unfortunate circumstances that have arisen from series like Dark Side of the Ring. Specifically, the Plane Ride from Hell episode, which, boy oh boy, cost a lot of people their livelihoods, if you will. Yes, wrestling has its dark sides. So does hockey, so does professional football, so does everything. Everyone, everything has their dark sides. However, I find, unfortunately, that a lot of mainstream wrestling media tends to exponentially focus on the dark side and negativity surrounding wrestling because unfortunately that's what sells magazines or that's what gets clicks or that's what you know inspires content unfortunately and it's it's a very sad truth and maybe it's uh maybe it's quite a comment socially speaking on <laughs> where we are as a society and uh, you know a philosophical discussion on all of that kind of stuff is probably something better saved for somebody much more <laughs> philosophically educated than myself however this is not a new um phenomenon if you will case in point the wrestling or sorry the wrestler magazine from 1970 november of 1970 had a very tasteless article if you will in regards to this but to further frame the media landscape at that time unfortunately it ain't much different nowadays i want to tell you the cover art on this magazine so one quote is on the top of the magazine rapist invades girls dressing room that's on a magazine to sell subscriptions in 1970 but in terms of and there's a whole article about oh goodness uh like the mighty Igor dealing with a, a rapist in a in a back room of a of a building. It's so it's bizarre. It's so bizarre. But what's 
as bizarre or certainly very questionable at least is content relating um, Don Eagle. And this is in regards to an article that was written by former wrestler and photographer Tony Lanza, who supposedly was on the phone at the time when Don Eagle took his own life. Now, this article is uh, is obviously from the viewpoint of somebody maybe trying to I don't know, get their name in the tabloids, if you will. It's very, it's very strange and very sordid. And, uh, oh boy, uh, I have, I'm having a hard time with describing the article itself. And there's, there's a lot in here that I don't really want to get into, but how they frame this article is yeah, you know what? I'm not going to say that. That doesn't need to be said on the program. It's again, th- there are articles and there are substances in there and there are fabrications out there that have been in the ether and unfortunately that is one of them. Uh <laughs> but if anybody thinks that current wrestling media is uh the only you know kind of toxic form that this industry has taken over the years that's simply not true and unfortunately there is uh there is evidence of exactly that another thing that was brought up is a theory postulated by luthez now this came up in a big media sensation in i want to say the year 2000 kind of the advent age of the early wrestling um, message boards now I'm going to read this a little bit and then I'm going to kind of debunk of what the actual facts are in regards to what happened so somebody had asked Luthez on a message board in the 1950s uh, again a term I don't use Indian wrestler Don Eagle was quite a sensation. Today, a little is mentioned. What do you remember him about him? And Luthez had mentioned uh, he was from Kahnawake, uh, Quebec's Indian reservation. He was a fighter before he wrestled, and he was very colorful as a wrestling performer. I wrestled him in Montreal, and he wasn't doing well as a wrestler. So when the ref called break, he copped a Sunday on me. I went after him and took him down, did the step over toehold, and made him conceive concede his uncle and this is i'm just going to read it and then we're going to debunk this after his uncle who posed at his father told eddie quinn he will never wrestle thez again to which eddie replied he will never wrestle here again story has it that he that his wife shot and killed him after many of his beatings Uh, she was not charged with any crime and left and went to florida the uncle asked her to come back and was forgiven and for some kind of ceremony, they killed her. I guess wrestling tries to talk as little about the part of his profession as possible, but you asked. So, there's a couple of things in his statement that are factually uncheckable, right? One is, obviously, the the aspect of how uh, Chief Don Eagle was killed 
or died by suicide is completely unsubstantiated. Unsubstantiated. Listen to me talk. Now, the other part of it is this incident that supposedly happened in Montreal. Now, I could not find throughout my records any incident like this taking place. Unfortunately, Luthes had a reputation of disparaging people who he didn't get along with in professional wrestling. Now, I I cannot say for certain whether this incident happened or not. I can't find it. I've I've scoured so many wrestling databases and I, and it's not come up to me this specific incident. So whether or not it happened uh, is is up to the reader's mind, I suppose. However, it's interesting that he would bring up that type of story and then bring up the uh, aspect about War Eagle as well. And this kind of ties into a different aspect of the story that we haven't really covered. And that is the cultural appropriation aspect of First Nations wrestlers in professional wrestling. Now, we can trace the lineage of Chief Don Eagle through the Mohawks for generations. You're going to hear a lot about that in a little bit with my upcoming guest. Unfortunately, throughout professional wrestling history, there are there have been, and still are as far as I know, wrestlers who wrestle under assumed identities. Coincidentally, they also wrestle under assumed heritages and we've seen throughout the years whether it's sunny two rivers or there was another don eagle wrestling in world of sport in the uk and i believe the 1980s so naturally well after uh the real don eagle had passed away but uh he was you know just your run-of-the-mill white guy but was wearing the headdress trying to portray the um, First Nations gimmick. Uh, Chief, Jay, Chief Jay Strongbow is another one who comes to mind. There's been countless wrestlers throughout the years who have appropriated the, we'll say, cultural um, givings, if you will, of what they're trying to present uh, in the ring and as a character. And unfortunately, because this has happened so many times throughout history, when you do see somebody who is actually a First Nations wrestler, they almost get discounted because it's happened in the past. And, oh, it's got to be a fake because so-and-so was a fake. And I feel like that's that's a pretty unfair characterization and an unfair position for First Nations wrestlers to be in. And I think that that also plays a part in what Luthes was bringing up, right? He's, it almost seemed like in his dissertation, it was a hit piece almost. And then he brings up the fact where his uncle, quote unquote, uh, was pretending to be his dad. We know that this is factually incorrect as well. This was another story that was going around uh, about Don Eagle in the previous we'll say wrestling newsletters for lack of a better term 
unfortunately, you know, sensational headlines sell. And that's where a lot of that comes from. And then it gets repeated and passed along. And unless it's been properly researched and debunked, then it kind of progresses. So with all that being said, as much as, uh, as much as the end of his life was horrific, whatever happened, we can't really, we can't really use that as a means to discredit his career or to further feed uh, outstanding conjecture, if you will. And I think that that's about the best way that I can put uh, the period and fine point on that one. So, huh, I know that that was a little bit of a, a heavy listening material, and I apologize, but it is part of the story and uh, and something that we also needed to get into and that that also doesn't even take into account how his wife was murdered as well and that is a story that is horrific as well and i suppose i can quickly give the cole's notes version because again i i really don't want to make this program about just murder and death and and the darkness that surrounded everything but unfortunately uh his wife was found murdered in the back of a of a vehicle on the Ganawake reserve a few years after uh don eagle had passed away now i'm being vague with details because I, I'm I'm having a hard time separating or trying to present it um, factually without having all the facts. So all I can give is the facts of what happened when she was found. Unfortunately, to do anything else would be to sensationalize it, I feel, and I'm not comfortable with doing that portion of it. It is out there. You can read about it uh, online through, I would hope, reputable sources. But in terms of this conversation, it's not something that I'm going to speculate or or deeply get involved in. And that's out of respect for her and out of respect for the family as well, because that's not something that anybody really wants to dig up. And oh boy, oh <laughs> I've gone way, way, way longer and more in depth into this part of it than I ever truly meant to. But unfortunately, it's part of the story that has to get covered. Uh, and that's part of, you know, pr presenting a factual and, uh, and honest program. So I hope you guys understand uh, why I chose to include the facts I did. And, uh, and I hope you'll understand my hesitation about diving deeper into, you know, conjecture and conspiracy and, and all that kind of stuff. Cause I really don't think that that solves or furthers the program in, in any way, shape or form. So, huh. 
Now, to liven the program quite a bit, because again, that was very dark. I'm joined by my third guest of the evening. I was absolutely blessed to be joined by one of the sons of Chief Don Eagle, Flint Eagle. Now, for those of you who are not familiar, Flint is a Hollywood stuntman and a stunt coordinator. He's appeared in 400 plus uh, television shows and movies. Uh, he has multiple speaking roles in quite a bit of movies as well. I've been watching actually quite a bit of them on YouTube, funny enough, lately. And uh, it was an absolute treat and a complete honor to uh, be talking with Flint. He was very gracious enough to be taking time away from his very busy filming schedule to talk to me. So without further ado, my conversation with Flint Eagle and on the other side, we are going to... Uh, wrap up the program for tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, my conversation with Flint Eagle. All right, I'm super pleased to be joined on the line today by one of the sons of Chief Don Eagle, Flint Eagle. Flint, how you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. But, uh, before we get into the conversation today, can you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Um, uh, as I guess as you know now, my name is Flint Eagle, and Mohawk, uh, my Mohawk name is Kanya de Kunsu de Horonyate Agwex. Um, I don't expect anybody to remember that. <laughs> um, however, um, yeah, I'm, uh, a, I'm entering my 34th, 33rd year um, as a professional stunt performer, actor, stunt actor, and stunt coordinator. I've done a little over 400 movies and television shows as a professional stunt performer and coordinator. I I really don't even know where to begin. <laughs> well, that's a great. You know, I, either I get the job or I don't. <laughs> you know? I either it's like you're either going to beat me up or kill me. <laughs> or both. I make a living out of dying. <laughs> and that's I can honestly say that that's the first time I've ever had that come up in a conversation on this program. <laughs> <laughs> So we were talking a little bit off air in regards to, you know, the preparation, what actually goes into this type of work. And I was surprised, and this is something that came up during, as we were talking off air, the course of the Roddy Piper episode, but just how much time and effort and coordination goes into one of these fight scenes is absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, just to get... Um... 20 seconds, 30 seconds, even a minute of, of a fight scene will take weeks to months to, to shoot, especially depends on how, how involved the actors are. Um, primarily when it's stunt performers um, and stunt doubles, um, you know, it goes pretty quick. But, but again, you know, primarily actors are not usually, um, you know, heightened athletics athletes. And um, so it takes a little bit longer working with actors, you know, to develop fight scenes. Also, we develop the fight scenes with the actors and with their stunt doubles. And um, so the stunt doubles are doing the, the main part of the fight. And then for the close-ups and things, we have the actors come in. But the actors also have to know the fight. But the stunt doubles have to um, train to be able to mimic the 
actor. It's not the actor mimicking the stunt performer. It's the stunt performer, stunt double, who has to carry on the, the physical attributes, the mechanical movements, everything, the even the little personality nuances of the actor, you know, to be a proper stunt double, stunt performer, um, because you've got to sell it like you're the guy. So it's all uh, it, it's a relationship and it's a development, and sometimes it takes a little bit longer. It's funny how much your line of work resembles your father's line of work, not in terms of uh, you know just the name, obviously you know wrestling and and stunt acting, if you will, is they're two different things. But how much time coordination, um, how much preparation goes into these type of ventures it's it's very interesting that you would come upon that line of work what drew you to stunt acting i should ask as well well um as as a child um well i mean i was i began training to fight you know uh with my father when i was three years old and um you know so like then everybody expected that of me um, I grew up, you know, fighting everywhere I went. Everybody, you know, wanted to fight Don Eagle's kid, wanted to fight the Indian. <laughs> and, uh, um, my parents were my parents were murdered when I was small, and I went to live with my grandmother in Florida. Of course, you know, everybody's get the Indian. Everybody wanted to fight the Indian. So, you know, fighting whether I wanted to or not, it wasn't a choice. You know, it was something that I was I was born into, something that I was brought into, and something that was um, culturally and relatively forced upon me by um, society and by children. You know, growing up, you know, um, and uh, just you know, I got I I entered into the fight world. Um, I was doing shoot fighting, um, was MMA. Um, I was going to, uh, we, of course I was living in Florida, just north of Clearwater, um, where everybody was, you know, Terry, uh, the Hulk, um, Hulk Hogan, um, uh, Eddie, Bruce Barber, Bruce the Barber, BBA, yeah. the Nasty Boys, and we were all buddies, we were always hanging out, the, um, you know, uh, the hearts, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, those were some of my buddies growing up, and and as it was going, um, Eddie wanted me to be his tag team partner. So um, I was going to come in as the son of Don Eagle, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, but Eddie had his accident. I went a different way. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I guess I'm not prepared <laughs> for this conversation. But um, they all... Um, you know, uh, Hulk Hogan, you know, it's like they, they said my father was the reason that they became professional wrestlers, that they wanted to be wrestlers. Because everybody, it was Don Eagle, right? Yes. Um, he was, you know, uh, held the title for 10 years, um, world heavyweight title. Uh, my grandfather was, his father was um, uh, world middle heavyweight champion. Um, my great-grandfather was uh, just this magnificent magnificent, just incredible white man killer and um, righteous though. The only, you know, only bad dudes. Yes. And, um, you know, so, uh, poof, here I am. 
<laughs> so I didn't, it, yeah, I didn't, it, it ended up in, in fighting. I ended up having to fight a lot of my friends in competition. And when you end up having to fight your friends, you lose your friends. So I lost who I believe were my closest friends because once you beat them, they don't want to be your friends anymore. They don't want to talk to you anymore. Yes. And, um, but that's in the, you know, in competition, not in the uh, professional wrestling ring. And, um, anyway, just, uh, one day, um, you know, I got a call. I moved back to my reservation just outside of Montreal called Ganawagit, and which is a Mohawk reservation. And um, just one day I got a call from a production company. I started racing canoes is what it was. Oh, cool. I came cool. in fifth in the World Games, and, um, and I came in first in the Canadian Voyager Games. And I got a phone call one day, and this production uh, wanted me to um, paddle a canoe down some rapids. It was the last shot they needed of this production, and they were having a hard time getting it because they couldn't get anybody to do the job. So they called me up. I did the job. Uh, the next day, they called me for a speaking role in uh, another film. I did that. The following week, they called me for a principal role in a five-hour miniseries where I was the killer. So uh, that is how it began. <laughs> So I did 10 films in the first year, and I didn't even know I was in the film industry. Um, I thought the uh, actor and SAG were, I thought that they, they were, you know, um, uh, some mafia trying to get my money. <laughs> you know, they're, they're calling me up saying, hey, when are you going to come down and join the union? And I'm like, uh, what union? What's this all about? Yeah. Who are you people? Because all I knew, you know, from television and history and stuff, that unions were organized crime. Yeah. And... You know, uh, but I don't need to say anything about that. <laughs> and um, now, um, 32 plus years later, I've done, you know, a little over 400 movies and television shows. And it has been my full-time profession for the last going on 33 years. That's one incredible story. And the, I, I can't imagine the journey just in terms of the whirlwind almost that it would have been like, like you said, 10 movies in the first year, and then you're just kind of thrusting into this whole thing. And like you were saying as well, is it, what, 400 plus at this point in time? Yes. Yeah, that's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. Uh, thank you. And I, uh, I, I do... Please I, go ahead. I do feel very, very blessed. Um, I, know that, uh, I, I know that my ancestors are watching over me all the time. Um, it's... You know, it's um, it's just a, it's it's a great life. It's a beautiful life, but it's tough. You got to train. You've got to uh, you get broken bones. You get you know you bleed. You you know sometimes uh, unfortunately we lose um, on average five stunt performers every year um, perish on set, and um, and I'm sure you know we don't hear a lot about it in the news, but we have heard you know a bit of it. And, um, I've, I've come close to death, um, minimum five times and, uh, but I have, you know, you know, you know, but the thing is, if you don't get any bumps, cuts and bruises and broken bones, you haven't done it. (laughs) That's, that's just part of the game. It's part of the, part of the, uh, job much the same as, you know, um, uh, professional wrestling, wrestling entertainment. 
know, those wrestlers, everybody says, oh, it's fake and it's it's choreographed and it's staged. And yes, there's there's an amount of uh, choreography that goes with it. You know, who's the winner, who's the loser and stuff. But the athleticism, you know, um, is so high. The injuries, the intensity, it's, uh, you know, it is you if you are not an incredible athlete in that ring, then then you're not going to last for one. Yes. In the industry. And uh, and you will you you know, the injuries will end your career. You know, and injuries do. You know, like you know, like everybody. My father, you know, um, it was a broken back, you know, that ended his career, a broken back sustained in the ring. Yes. Yeah, it's it's you know, he, uh, go ahead, please. Yes. No, I mean he he had done you know, attempted a comeback but the, you know, the, the pain and the constant pain and the injuries, it's, uh, you know, and you have, you know, you know, professional wrestlers in there, you know, who aren't given the time to re recuperate, to recover properly. And they get back in the ring and they only re-injure themselves or increase, you know, the sustained injury. And it's interesting as well, especially in his time, there was no there. Well, e- even now there is no off season in wrestling, right? So you you, yeah. you have these athletes. Yes, they're in it, in it, incredible shape and they can do incredible things, but an injury is an injury and it needs a certain amount of time. And there's even today you hear you hear it all the time that you know guys and girls don't take that time off that they need to take to absolutely rehab that injury properly. And it creeps up and it creeps up and it creeps up and years and years and years. These guys just get beaten down and worn down. And, you know, we continue to see it even to this day, right? Yes. Uh, like we, we had just lost Scott Hall who had, you know, he was, he was in the um, profession for almost four decades of just yeah. absolute punishment, right? He, he was one of the boys we hung out with down in Florida. Oh, no yeah. way. Yeah, I think Scott Hall. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's, it's such a small world, and Florida is such a small place. Yes, it is, actually. It's and, funny you mention that. You know, and, um, yeah, it's just, uh, and it's just, it, it, again, it's a very small world. It's a tight-knit world, small world, and predominantly, you know, everybody supports each other. It's like we were hanging out, we were always together. We were on the beach, Clearwater Beach, playing volleyball, <laughs> you know, just laying around, you know, we'd be just eating and drinking beer and playing volleyball and just having a blast. Yeah. There were a a couple of things that you brought up that I kind of wanted to circle back to and kind of dig into a little bit, if you don't mind. Uh, One was, you mentioned that uh, you were about three years old when you kind of started learning how to fight with your father. Were you able, at that point, because I know it would have been late in his career, were you ever able to see him wrestle live? Um, I did. Um, you know, it's like uh, as an infant in yes. my mother's arms, you know, it had brought me to the ring. And um, so I, I had, as I recall, um, I had only seen one of his matches. But even still, that's that's got to be something that you at least try and mentally hold on to, right? Eh? Like, Oh, yeah. the, the feeling yeah. and just the sight um, that that's got to be just a special memory for yourself. Yeah. Just the, the, I mean, it was, it was very frightening, 
you know, the fear, the trembling in a little child, an infant child's chest and his heart and, you know, knowing that's his father in the ring and just the, you know, the violence and the, the yes. crowd and the devastation. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a lot to take in. It's interesting, uh, that point that you bring up specifically, because we've heard throughout the years and read in, in biographies and such, like in Bret Hart's book, for example, he tells of, you know, seeing Stu getting assaulted in the ring by whoever, the the Mongolian stomper, for example, and just the fear that he had of seeing his dad being beaten down and beat up and in a fight for his life, and then, you know, juxtapose it with what you learn after the fact, right? That it's, there's a bit of cooperation. Yeah, it's violent. It for, for sure is, and it it's not the easiest profession, but it's it's got to be wild for yourself seeing that and then understanding a little bit later in life of, of what was happening and, and what was going on in the ring. Yeah, you know, and then, you know, um, growing up under the legacy of my father and my grandfather, um, you know, it, it, everything. We built, we took, uh, you know, cutting the lawn and, filling up garbage bags and building rings and having, uh, you know, building rings along the horse fence so we could have turnbuckles. You know, <laughs> wow. Bounce off, the, bounce off the fencing and, you know, and uh, just, yeah, yeah. So we all, so, you know, it has that effect on you. You know, and of course, you know, my mother holding me, reassuring me that, uh, you know, that it was what it was. But, the injuries, you know, you cannot play like that. You can't play like that. You can't, you can't roughhouse like that without sustaining injuries. Yes. And, and these, these professional wrestlers, men and women alike, you know, the timing, if the timing is a little off and it happens in stunts too, timing gets a little off and that's when you get hurt. Yes. That's when, if your timing's off, if somebody else's timing is off and you know, that is, they are fine, fine tuned athletes, you know, that much the same as in film, we have a script that we have to stick to, you know, but the, the, the ability to to perform, the ability, and even with injuries sustained in the ring at the time, you know, they continue fighting. You know, it's you know, if it's a very severe injury, then it's looked after. Everybody knows, you know, everybody's watching each other, and you know, they're talking to each other. Yeah. You know, and you know, the the rookies have a tendency to get a little bit more punished you know, in the ring, it's part of the learning scale. And, um, I mean, we don't, we don't punish the newbies in the stunt industry. Um, we let them punish themselves. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, in the wrestling ring, you know, the veterans, you get, you get some young guys that are a little cocky and stuff like that, and they need to be put in their place. You know, and that's, uh, you know, when that happens, you, you see that, you know, and then, um, you know, and everybody's got personalities. And so sometimes, you know, sometimes fists do fly in the ring. Sometimes, you know, um, you know, they connect a little bit. Yeah. You put a little bit, a little bit extra on it. Yeah. And, uh, then, you know, um, 
depending on the opponent, they get a little bit of payback. Just a little bit of lesson to learn. Yes. The uh, the other thing that you had mentioned and that I kind of wanted to circle back to as well is like you had mentioned that you were raised in Florida. Obviously, that's been a big part of our conversation today. When you had gone back to Kahnawake, and this is a conversation that I had, had with uh, Billy Two Rivers, is that the <laughs> yeah. it, it's oral history is huge with your people. Yeah. When you had gone back, did you? encounter a lot of oral history being passed to you about what your father, what your grandfather, what your great-grandfather had done in professional wrestling? Um, not really. Um, I, I grew up with the knowledge of my father okay. in, his, in his professional career. Um, but when I returned to Ganawag, it, it was, uh, of course, you know, Billy's an old friend of mine. My dad brought Billy in and taught Billy. Yes. And, um, and you know, you know, people like Billy, you know, telling me about my father, you know, and things like that. But I had my grandmother, you know, and my other relatives, you know, all sharing. But, it, you know, it was a different life. It was a different, um, it wasn't so much about the, the professional life that I learned about my father as opposed to the personal and cultural life. Yes. And I guess that's something we can expand on a little bit more because, you know, unfortunately you didn't have anywhere close to a full life with your father. Naturally, you, you would have gotten quite a few stories from, from your, your grandmother, like you just said, but what were you able to kind of learn uh, throughout the years that maybe sticks out to you more than just, you know, some of the road stories, if you will, for lack of a better term. Well, um, you know, to the world, um, to the world, my father was this hero. To the world of Native Americans, Native North Americans, the Aboriginal people of North America, um, he was an icon. He was a hero. They had... I mean, all across North America, like the most famous haircut was the Don Eagle haircut. Yes. You know, kids would go in and, and everybody knew, I want a Don Eagle. You know, so they'd give a Mohawk haircut. Um, I, would, I would have to say um, there are two sides to every coin. Um, the, the home life and family life was, was not the life of a hero. Um, you know, to the people in Ganawaga, it's like, you know, things are different behind closed doors. He, yeah, um, he was a generous man. He was a good man. He was a strong man. He was a role model. He was so many things outside the ring. Um, but at home, um, it was quite a different story. Um, he was abusive to my mother. Um, he was abusive to me, um, to my brother and sister. Um, I am the youngest of all the children. And uh, he, he was quite cruel at home. And as was my grandfather. Um, and that is where my father, that is how my father learned 
to be a cruel man at home because his father was cruel. Yes. And unfortunately, um, um, I got to know my grandfather quite a bit more than I had known my father. And um, it was a brutal time. It was a cruel time. Um, That's about all I got to say about that. And naturally, you know, we, we can't look at time periods, you know, with today's eyes. And obviously I'm not, I would never condone, you know, any type of abuse like that. But it's, it's interesting, the point that you bring up about, you know, kind of learned behavior, right? And then it, eventually it goes to when does it stop, right? So Yeah, the sins of the father. Yes. Um, you know? And sorry, I, I just there there's been st- stories out there about that portion of it. Obviously, it's something we touch on a little bit in this program, but it's not it's not meant to shine a negative light on a person's entire story. I guess is the proper way right. to phrase it, right? Every like the the way that you phrase it is perfect. There's always two sides, right? And, and we've heard a lot of. Um, positive stories. Unfortunately, there are individuals and we'll say resources out there that like to focus on the negative side. And it is out there, some of which which you just described, but you almost can't tell the story without telling that portion of it. So I I thank you for sharing at least that portion of it and saying it, phrasing it the way that you did. Yeah, he had, you know, um, what he accomplished outside of the home, what he accomplished in the ring, what he accomplished in the world of entertainment was grand. And what a grand um, movement and statement and to empower Aboriginal people throughout North America, um, to empower them a sense of honor, a sense of dignity, a sense of power and pride, a sense of strength. Um, that was a very great thing. But, you know, the, the, the pressures, um, you know, uh, again, my grandfather had taught him how to deal with his personal life and his personal pressures, um, which uh, were not conducive to a healthy home life. Yes. And, um, yeah, it just, um, but he had accomplished so much for the Aboriginal community, um, especially my own in Gahnawagi, for the Mohawks, not only of Gahnawagi, but Mohawks throughout North America. Yes, which is something that we keep coming up to over and over again in the research for this program, is just what a, what a cultural impact he had made, right? Whether it's in Canada, especially in America, like in uh, Ohio specifically, um, Detroit, there's a lot of time spent. And then there there was one story that, and I, I don't mean to digress too much, but when I was talking to Billy Two Rivers, there was one story that he had told where they were in a series of matches, and I think uh, it was Cuba. And you, w- you wouldn't think that two Mohawks from just outside of Montreal would be, you know big stars in a different country but they were and and he was just saying like the 
the crowd just ate everything up and wanted to learn more about the culture. And I think that that is super impressive too, that yes, he was big. He was a big star and he, whether or not it's simply because he was, you know, of a different color, um, the fact of how he wrestled, how he presented himself and what he brought culturally to these different places and just drew people's interest in, I think is super interesting. Yeah. Um, I had one, um, one out of just hundreds of experiences, but one in particular, I was sailing in the Atlantic ocean. I had been sailing for six months and we had come across, um, I worked for a company called International Yacht Exchangers. There was, was the captain, the navigator, and myself as first mate. And we were delivering yachts from Fort Lauderdale and St. Pete, Florida, to you know uh, whoever purchased the lot, whoever purchased the boat, yes, the sailboat. So we were we had delivered down to uh, Tortola, a seventy foot CSY, and we were bringing back a fifty two footer, um, you know, to have refitted. And we got hit by the tail of a hurricane for two days and three nights, blown wow. off the course, all the instruments and everything wiped out. And about 2.10 in the morning, on a Tuesday morning, we hit a coral reef and sank about, I'd say, a one and a half nautical miles off the shore of Maguana, an island out in the Atlantic. And so it took, uh, it was about eight days before the Coast Guard could come in and rescue us. Um, meanwhile, um, uh, the Coast Guard had, you know, radioed the island. They sent a little fishing boat, little, like, maybe 14-foot fishing aluminum bo- you know, fishing yeah, boat. Yeah, just a standard, yeah. The island. And, um, and while I was there, um, it was so, it was just so wonderful. My experience there was so wonderful. But I was walking down this old goat path on the island, and I came across this little shack. The little shack had to be no bigger than eight by eight, or maybe six by eight. It was a tiny little shack in the middle of nowhere. And there were four very, I'd say, quite elderly men um, of, of island descent. Um, they, the gray hair, they were beautiful, and they were playing dominoes. And... No windows, no door, and no windows in the building. <laughs> yeah. And one man looks up, and he says, he he looked out as I was passing by, and he goes, he goes, it's the man. The man is here. The man had come back. And I'm in my, I at the time, mid-late 20s, and, um, and they all came out of the, these four little men came out of, well, you know, two of them were kind of tall, but they were all, you know, skinny. And, yes. You know, they were island boys. <laughs> and um, they came out of this little shed and, and they just, they were in disbelief. And they said, they said, come here, boy, you look just like the man. And they told me, and like, well, what do you tell them? They, they would tell me how this story, how they would go, they would travel by boat for 15 hours to the main island to gather around. There was one television on the main island. Yeah. And they were 15 hours. Everybody who had boats would get in their little boats, and, and the boats would be almost sinking, they said, with people, just to go watch professional wrestling on Sunday. To watch, and, they, and the man, 
they called my father the man and it was and and they're like you know Aww. and then they just lost I, I was like a <laughs> god on the island when they found out that that was my father that's incredible because he was still their hero he, all these years passed uh, you know his life gone all those years passed but his legend and his memory remain you know that beautiful effect that beautiful you know you know regardless of how how hard our lives are it sheds that light on how important it is how we affect people we don't even know we affect them yes but he affected he did not affect a thousand people he didn't affect a hundred thousand he didn't affect a million he affected the world and the world that knew him through athletic entertainment they to him he was their hero and and they just the whole time i was there they celebrated me the entire time it was nothing that i had done but because to them i looked just like my father when they were young when yeah. they were boys watching him on the on the television on the mainland that's an incredible story i yeah, and it has happened it has happened all over the world to me i'm i'm shooting films or something in different places in the world and there's always always an elderly man or elderly woman that gives reference to my father and that I, I without even knowing who i am yeah how i remind them of he that's something else that i found throughout you know, research, and I've been in contact with some of these people who have had, there's uh, blogs written, like pages long blogs of people and their experience of, you know, either gathering around a television, like you just said, or going to the matches and seeing your father. And, you know, we're what, uh, 40 years past, right? And it's... Bye. I have no idea. And it, 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 it's still, well, some of them were almost 50 years, some of those matches, but they still talk about them. So I've been in contact with these people and they're from, like you said, all over the world. I've talked to people from, uh, from America. I've talked to people from Scotland. I've talked to people from Ireland. I've had people contact with people in the UK and just, it's, it's all it, it, via these long dissertation stories of their experience watching your dad on television or live. And then it's what's more interesting I find about that is how many of these people have gone now and researched his people because of him. And there's, yeah. there's one blog in particular, and I'm trying to think, where is she from? She is from California, I believe. And she had gone and started researching the Ganawakia Reserve and everybody that came from there. And then spawned her to Billy Two Rivers, spawned her to everything else that was coming out of that that territory. And just, it's wild how, how one man just creates this, this cascade effect, right? It's crazy. Yeah. And yeah, still, and still yeah. does today, right? And some of these blogs are from from tw like the one was from 2020 one's from uh 2019 you know then i contact these people and they're just like you know the email back and forth is like chains right it's it's so crazy yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, in the in the world of professional wrestling, my father is still the Aboriginal icon, Native American icon. Yes. Of professional wrestling, you know, it's like, um, you know, you had Wahoo McDaniel's, you had, you know, all these others. You had uh, um, what's his name, the uh, the warrior. I can't. Think uh, of Tatanka that. was one, and then ultimate, yeah, yeah. Tatanka, the Ultimate Warrior, and this and that, and this and that. You know, regardless of regardless of their achievements. Um, no one had, even to this day, achieved as much as a world-renowned icon and professional wrestler, uh, native uh, in a native aspect, Aboriginal aspect, than my father. Yeah, I I can't even argue that for one second. It's not even close. Uh, uh, even the biggest wrestlers, the biggest names in wrestling, Hulk Hogan. You know, uh, for instance, you know, my father was their hero. My, and they literally say, Rocky Johnson, you know, that, that my father was the reason they became professional wrestlers. Which that's maybe the biggest legacy that he could leave, right? And, and to spawn, you know, these great superstars that we would know of today, who then in turn inspire all these other stars, it kind of all, you know, you can, you can trace the lineage, right? And it, it's almost yeah. a direct line and man, that's, it's you sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes you, you don't, you, we don't stop and think sometimes in, especially in today's era of everything's now, now, now. And you know, you watch and it's over, you watch this guy and it's over, whatever. We have a hard time nowadays of, of sitting and thinking like, okay, where did this start? Where, where, where was the seed planted? Where did this germinate from? And a lot of the guys that you just mentioned, and you can, like I said, draw a straight line right to them. And boy, oh boy, it's it's absolutely incredible that, you know, your father, just, just a guy from a reserve outside of Quebec, just inspires countless people. It's, it's yeah. really impressive. Yeah, he, um, he had in a sense, even unbewitting to him, had shaped, had been an intricate part of shaping professional wrestling. Now, he was a household name in the United States. He was, you couldn't go anywhere, anywhere in Florida without everybody absolutely knowing who Don Eagle was. Yeah, it's just... And and what's even more wild about all of that is how short his pro career was, right? Like, just imagine if he didn't yeah. sustain the back injury, what it, how much bigger it could have been, or how how like it's it's unfathomable. Yeah, it um, you will never know, you know. And as I was stating, um, you know, to all men, not. Not just my father, but to all professional athletes, to all, if you're an athlete, if you're not an athlete, if you're a computer guy, there's always a dark side. We all have a dark side. I know I do. And um, if you, if you look 
deep enough and focus on that, then you're focusing on the wrong thing. Yes. You know, it, it, it needs to be, you know, there were so many great, beautiful, wonderful things that, that people had achieved. And there, it's those beautiful things that we should hold on to, the things, the positive things that have affected our lives. I mean, everybody. You can look, you can go through the dossier. Um, Jake the Snake Roberts, you can go through everything and, and see the dark sides. You know, the, uh, but that power, that in, in encouragement, that, that light that they had turned on in, in millions of people. They were the reasons, and they. And there was a time when my father was the. Re- my father was single-handedly the reason all those people in Meguana every Sunday would pile up dangerously in little boats <laughs> and go to the main island just to watch him for a few hours on television. You know that that um, that's powerful, and. And millions of people tuning in around the world to watch, to watch their heroes, to watch these superstars. You know, it's amazing. And but you know, remember, everyone, remember, they are also only men. And I think that's uh, I couldn't phrase that aspect of it better myself. That is absolutely powerful and absolutely true as well. Yeah, you put me speechless. There's not many times that I'm I'm very uh verklempt and uh and bumfuzzled, but you've got me here. And uh the stories that and again, these are stories that if they're not shared or talked about and told properly within the proper context, when they're gone, they're gone. And uh yes. And, you know, there's been a lot of information that we've uncovered throughout the course of this program that's, you know, if, if we didn't uncover it, if, if guys like Jamie didn't, you know, put in the research to find out how, you know, the, his career actually, like where his first set of matches actually happened, if the stories like yourself of telling, you know, a random island out in the middle of the Atlantic of people who would pile in a boat and, and watch, like if these stories aren't shared and, and, and passed along and, and heard, then they're, they're gone. And, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm beyond words that, uh, that you were gracious enough to share those stories with us today. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I'm, I, I, I hate to cut it short, but I've got a lot of work to do to prepare for tomorrow. A hundred percent. Star Trek, uh, Strange New Worlds. Well, listen, this has been, you can tell by the smile on my face, this has been absolutely a, a, a treat for me. Um, before I let you go, uh, what's the best way that uh, someone can contact yourself uh, if they were looking to reach out and, uh, and get in touch with you regarding this program or regarding your uh, stunt work? Anybody wants to contact me, they can contact me on um, through Facebook or Instagram. I believe uh, I think I have a WhatsApp, and uh, even I don't have yeah, that. So you you beat me on this I'm one. Not a guy. <laughs> if, if I if I was a te- if I was technologically um, adequate, uh, I wouldn't be a stunt guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, listen. This they has been. Have- 
that's yeah. That <laughs> you're you're yeah. just there to beat people up and get beat up. <laughs> that's right. Uh, usually, I I'm the guy getting beaten up. And getting <laughs> Always by the heroes. Well, this has been an absolute treat. Thank you so much for your time today. Okay, thank you so much. Now, before we finish up this evening, I just want to really thank my three guests that I had on the program tonight. Jamie, Javier, and Flint. I could not have done this program without the three of you tonight. And it was my absolute honor and pleasure to have all three of you on the program. And I'm looking forward to our conversations in the future. I also want to thank each and every one of you for checking out the program tonight. Because... Really, you could have been doing anything else at all in the entire wonderful world that we live in, but you chose to check out this program on Don Eagle, and I am forever grateful. It would mean a lot to me if you could rate this program five stars on whatever podcasting platform that you are listening to, and as well, if you could leave a five-star written rate, rate written review. You can tell we're at the end, folks. <laughs> oh, great stuff. But I hope that everybody learned quite a bit in today's episode. I hope that we've opened uh, quite a few eyes about really one of the true wrestling, early wrestling pioneers and superstars from the television area. And really what Don Eagle meant to... Not just indigenous wrestling here in Canada, not just indigenous wrestling in North America, but the whole phenomenon of that 50s era, the early age of television professional wrestling. Jeez, you just, you almost can't underscore it enough just how important he was. And I, I, I truly hope that uh, we were able to hit the nail on the head on those specific points tonight. Once again, you can find this program on any podcasting platform of your choice, whether that's uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Good Pods, Google Podcasts. Again, wherever you buy, sell, trade, barter, or steal your favorite podcast, you will find Grappling with Canada. Like I asked previously, leave a five-star rating and written review. Also, tell your friends and family and pass this thing along. Truth, truthfully, the, the the best way that this program can be passed along is word of mouth, which means it's up to you, the listener. So, if you enjoyed this program, share it. Share it through whatever social media platform or, you know, that good old texting device that you carry probably in your pocket and uh, let your friends know what you heard on the program today. Also, the ways that you can support the program uh, to keep this whole thing going is all located in the uh, Linktree link in the show notes of the program. You can also go to uh, buymeacoffee.com slash grappling to buy me, the taxman, a refreshing beer because, boy oh boy, it is thirsty work delivering a program like this. You can also donate to the program directly uh, via via the PayPal link. And the tip jar function over at Good Pods. I also want to make mention of the merchandise that you can produ- or you can get for the podcast. Uh, threadless, sorry, grapplingwithcanada.threadless.com is where you can find all of those wonderful things. And uh, 
all proceeds from the classic Grappling with Canada t-shirt logo. The classic one are donated to charity. So let's raise some money for the Children's Hospital here in friendly Winnipeg, Manitoba. And I apologize to everybody for being totally out of breath on the uh, the last part of this program. I have uh, quite the... Uh, quite the hockey injury I'm dealing with right now in terms of uh, in terms of breathability and my ribs so I apologize for the the breathy aspect of the close of this program today but boy oh boy that's uh, that's just the way she goes sometimes and that's part of the fun of podcasting so with all of that being said for myself the tax man for my wonderful guests and all three of you, Javier, Jamie, and Flint, I cannot thank the three of you enough. For all of them, for myself, to all of you, I will leave you as I always do. Take care of yourselves and each other. Good night, everyone. <laughs>